You're listening to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, recorded August 19th, 2020. Surprisingly complex games. Games that were much more than we expected. Our 103rd episode with Gloomhaven, Jaws of the Lion, Mermaid Adventures, another online con, and more. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 103, Surprisingly Complex Games. Games that were much more than we expected. I'm Sean, and with me, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Moti. I am the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, the RPG maitre d', answering your gaming and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. Let me put my years of game playing, event organizing, and game night hosting to use for you. I'd like to welcome everyone in the lobby here on Twitch. You can join us Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern here at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop. We totally should have called this one more than meets the eye. How did we miss that? We missed the Transformers reference. Totally should have done that. Anyway, tonight we're going to be talking about games that were much more involved than you would have expected. Like games that surprised us uh, with their complexity and depth. Um, Basically games that were more of a game than we expected or surprised us in some way. When we get to the game room, I've got a couple of games where what I'm going to be doing is comparing the new version of something to the old. So up first, I'm going to spend some time talking about how Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion differs from the original Gloomhaven, including new components and rule changes. And there are more of them than most people seem to lead you to believe. It's not all just line of sight and focus anymore. Uh, Then we're going to move on to a detailed review of Mermaid Adventures Revised. Uh, This is a setting book for the PIP System core book that we reviewed last week. Um, I'll be talking about my time at Cap, Camp Capstone, which was yet another game convention that happened last week, uh, once we get to our week in review segment. And we, I've got a little bit more to say about Jaws of the Lion there. And then Sean and I actually both played an RPG this past week, Runaway Hirelings, and we'll be talking a bit about that. We love interacting with our listeners and viewers. Each week, we're going to highlight some of our interactions with you fine folk. We'll share some feedback we received, comments on our content, and maybe some gaming discussions we've been part of online. We want to share what people are saying, both positive and negative. We appreciate your comments and suggestions, and if you'd like to let us know something about the show, send your feedback to mo at tabletopbellhop.com and or sean at tabletopbellhop.com. That's S-E-A-N. You can also hit us up on social media. I can be found everywhere online as tabletopbellhop, one word. And I can be found as darkelflx. Up first, a quick comment from Walk Steady on YouTube on our two-year anniversary episode. Just found you. Enjoyed the show. Uh, thanks, Walk Steady. I hope you stick around. Next, longtime fan and patron of the show, Brian Kurtz, commented on our PIP System core book review. This is a great review. Both As both a PIP System mega fan and a bellhop mega fan, this is like a Reese's peanut butter cup of gaming goodness. I have a great interest in RPGs for young people, and of the ones I have tried, there are five that are standouts to me as truly outstanding. This is one of them. I also think it is quite suitable for adults, and, as you point out, is more rules-light and story-driven than some crunchier systems. That suits me well. I am planning to run the So Mote It Be setting of Pip with my online group when it comes back to me as a GM. We are rotating GMs right now as we are playing Blades in the Dark. My list of top five outstanding RPGs for kids is Amazing Tales, which is so rules-light that it is barely a system, but a very good way to flexibly introduce RPG storytelling games. Hero Kids scratches the Maps and Minis itch. No Thank You Evil 
two brilliantly, especially brilliant things about uh, No Thank You Evil are its mechanics to promote helping support another character's action and the system to allow differing complexity of rules uh, even in the same game so that a different age skill kids can play together. A tiny D6, especially the Tiny Dungeon Hatchling Edition, and the PIP system. There is no order to this list of five outstanding games because they are each good in their own way for different things. Anyway, great review, and I hope it turns some folks on to the PIP system. Now, Brian must have really liked this review because he also commented on the YouTube version of the RPG review. I always love it when the bellhop tackles RPGs. Great review of a system I like. I enjoyed the blog post on this, and I had to watch this one on video. Well, thanks for the very detailed comments, Brian. Um, for me, with my girls, once we found Mermaid Adventures, I basically kind of stopped looking for kid-friendly RPGs. Uh, we were having fun with that, so uh, why fix what isn't broken, right? So I never really drove into any of the other RPGs designed for kids. And at this point, my kids are pretty much past those introductory-level games. So now that we have the PIP system source book, that's a nice step up from the original Mermaid Adventures rulebook. Um, and well, tonight, later in the show, I'll be talking about the revised version of Mermaid Adventures, where Aloy has actually updated Mermaid Adventures to be a setting book for the PIP system source book. And again, that's probably the next step we'll take here. Well, what we'll do is toss links to all those great-sounding kids' RPGs in the show notes. Now, up next, we got a surprisingly high number of comments on our unboxing videos this week. First up, a comment from Chris Groff on our Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion unboxing that just went up earlier this week. Chris says, that's a good amount of bits, but the best thing they did was the map being in the books. Well, thanks for the comment, Chris. Uh, well, I do agree that not having to dig around and look for the right map board and all the overlay tiles is a great change. I do think Jaws has done even better, even more in impressive from it is the much better onboarding system and how much better it is for getting the game to the table quickly right out of the box, as well as teaching the rules of the game bite by bite through the five intro scenarios. Now more about that and Jaws of the Lion later in the show. Next, the Grack commented on our Burning Suns unboxing. It seems it has good components. Do you actually play it? How is it? Well, Grack, um, sad to say I haven't had a chance to actually play this due to the pandemic. Uh, this is a big, epic 4X sci-fi game, uh, you know, trying to compete with games like Eclipse and Twilight Imperium, and those just don't play well with two players. And this one in particular is rather high up on the complexity scale. This is a very involved 4X that's trying to... Uh, get all of the X's as well as deal with politics and other things. This is a heavier one. This just doesn't seem like a game that is at a level my kids are going to enjoy. They might be able to get it, but you know what? I'd rather teach them some simpler games and kind of step up to this one. So until the pandemic's done and maybe Sean can come down or we can expand our um, cohorts or whatever we're calling them now to slightly larger groups, that one's unfortunately going to have to sit on the pile of shame until we can get more players to physically play it. And I don't think that one's implemented online. I would be shocked and amazed, actually, if someone had implemented that one online. It is definitely not a well-known game. Well, finally, we go over to our Talisman Batman Supervillains Edition unboxing. Gregory Cook says, I recently got this via trade for another game, and it was sealed. I can't wait to crack it open soon. Isaac Ku basically gave us a play-by-play -play as he watched the video. I will call it 
Talus Batman, and no one can stop me. What a beautiful board. It looks like you might be able to repurpose the board for a Silent Hill-inspired game. I can't help but wonder if an item you can pick up is a cunning hat to give you a cunning boost. Love the character card artwork. Nice miniatures, too. Ooh. The loot bag can either carry four normal items or one loot. Space for DLC! <laughs> All right. For both Gregory and Isaac, thanks for the comments. Um, I do got to say, if you are a Talisman fan at all, uh, we'll get to our full review during the review of Palooza next week. But this is a version you really should check out. Like, besides the great Batman theme, I gotta admit, the villain theme, trying to escape Arkham, and the, as Isaac noted, top-notch components. Like, great-looking artwork, great-looking minis. This is a version of Talisman you can finish in about two hours. And that's with four players. I'll admit, I haven't played with six. But with four players, we finished in an hour and a half. That's crazy for Talisman. To me, that alone puts it ahead of the original as far as chances to actually get it to the table for me. Well, that's it for this week's comments. Thank you to everyone who shares comments and interacts with our content. A few quick announcements before we continue. This, in, this is that point where we like to say like, subscribe, hit the bell, and all that stuff. The channel has seen some real growth lately, so please help us continue that. The advantages we would see if we reached partner level go far beyond what just a simple monetization. And I got to say, for all of you who have suddenly subscribed to us on YouTube, welcome. I don't know where we're getting all this awesome new traffic. Like if 500 was a plateau that we didn't know was a plateau on YouTube. But our number of subscribers there have been growing substantially. And that is awesome to see. Greatly appreciate it. Sign up to receive Tabletop Bellhop weekly in your inbox. Once a week, assuming Mailer Light actually works, I will be sending out an email recapping all the content we released the week previous. Uh, links to blog posts, new podcast episodes, unboxing videos, and anything else we create. You can sign up by going to tabletopbellhop.com and subscribe right there in the sidebar, or go over to newsletter.tabletopbellhop.com. Now, for everyone here live in our chat room tonight, you have one week left, seven days, to enter our Gorinto giveaway. Now, for those of you listening on the podcast, assuming you're listening the day it dropped, which of course you do, you uh, today is the last day to enter. So head over to the blog right away. So head over to tabletopbellhop.com where we've got the giveaway pinned to the top of the page so you can't miss it. Well, get those entries in before time runs out. Now, finally, just a reminder that we're doing something different for next week's show. In place of our regular monthly AMA, we're going to host our first ever Review-A-Palooza. All right, this is going to be a review-filled episode. We're not going to have an Ask the Bellhop segment. We're not going to be answering your questions. Instead, we are going to try to power through a bunch of reviews. Um, I'm going to share my opinion on up to six different games. Uh, some of the ones we'll be featuring are Roll for Lasers, which is currently on Kickstarter, and we're checking out just because the, the price point is ridiculous. You get the print and play for a buck or two bucks for a physical copy uh, before shipping. Uh, Runaway Hirelings, which is an RPG we'll be talking about later. Brand Breakdancing Meeple, which is a game that... Uh, Daniel on Everyday Board Games wished he had invented. And, uh, well, Talisman Batman, which we were just talking about a few minutes ago when looking at our viewer feedback. And possibly a couple more if I can get them played before then. We're here to answer your game, gaming, or game night questions. You can send your questions to questions at tabletopbellhop.com or head over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on Ask the Bellhop. Uh, social media works too. We're everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Now, the best way for questions is to come through that website. That way they get logged and tracked and end up on a nice Excel spreadsheet for me to look at. But I'm not going to say no to a question asked anywhere online. 
Well, this week we have a question from a longtime fan of our show with us since the beginning, Prayerborn, who wrote in to say, I've actually thought before that an interesting discussion topic would be surprisingly advanced games. Older games with mechanics we think of as recent inventions, or even newer games that are gamier than we expect. Mass-marketed Hunger Games District 12 is a Euro? All right, thanks for the topic, Prayerborn. Uh, I, I feel bad we've had this one on the pile for a while, but we're finally getting to it. We did get to it. I do apologize. It may have taken a little while. Uh, this is an interesting one, and it's definitely something I have experienced, right? You sit down to play a game expecting one thing, and end up with something completely different, right? Now, sometimes the thing that's different is the game's worse than you expected, or it does, or which which doesn't seem as common, or like it just does something totally new that you never expected to see before, or it just is is heavier. It just it's much more than you thought it would be. Whether it's just more fun, it does some cool new thing, or it uses things you've seen before in new ways, or it has more interactions or more options than expected. Basically more, as Prayerborn worded it, more gamier. It's, it's more of a gamer's game than you would have ever thought it could be. Now, this happens to me most often probably with mass market games or licensed board games, because for many, many years, if there was a licensed game, it was a license thrown on a terrible, probably roll and move, miss a turn, or trivia game. Uh, that's thankfully changed changing but i've also had hobby games where they've completely blown me away as well and while i can certainly think of many many negative examples to this topic there are definitely some standout games that have made me do a double take yeah, we're gonna be we're gonna be looking at the positive side of things. We're not looking at games that were disappointing to us. We're looking for we're looking at stuff that surprised us in a good way. Now I gotta say, what happens for here is sometimes I'll find this on my own, right? Like I, I do a lot of research before purchasing a game, or even before like asking for a review copy from uh, publishers. And I tend to not get games that I don't expect to like. So it, every now and then it happens where, where something's different than I expect it to be. But more often, it's hype, right? It's the buzz. It's the, it's the internet hype. It's the pod, podcatchers, uh, Tom Vassals, the, the YouTubers, the content creators like us who will point out a game that most people will overlook. Like a good example of this is, uh, like Prayerborn said, Hunger Games District 12 is a Euro? Like seriously, there's a Hunger Games game out there. That, that's a Euro game, like not, not an Ameritrash, not a dice chucker. Like serious, I would have never looked at a Hunger Games game. Now I'll have to admit, I haven't checked this one out, but I'm curious now to see how, how good this game is. Yeah. Young adult, uh, mass market dystopian fiction isn't exactly where one would expect to mine for deep and thoughtful content in general, let alone in the board yeah. game aftermarket. <laughs> yeah, it's true enough. Like there, there were so many bad mass market games. But anyway, we're, we're going to talk about positive things here. So on onto the list. So these are all games that surprised us in some way. Um, the Prayerborn specifically said more complicated. These aren't all necessarily more complicated, but just that we're more or better than we expected. And I'm going to start off with one that, that just because when I was uh, working on the show notes, I was thinking about that hype, right? That internet hype, the, the buzz. And one of the games that I would have never touched is Medium. And the only reason I dug into that is that was considered the game of Gen Con 2019. Now, I didn't intend Gen Con 2019, but after Gen Con 2019, everyone was talking about Medium. 
like Twitter was a buzz with Medium. The podcasts I listened to were a buzz. Like, oh, did you play Medium? Oh, we played Medium. And oh, and after hours we played Medium. Everyone was talking about Medium. So I actually went myself and contacted the publishers and said, I have heard such good things about this game. It would be awesome if you could do a re- if if you would send us a review copy. And I'd also like to do a giveaway because well the hype was huge, and we got it. And I'm like, what the heck is this? Like like. I'm going to throw a card down and you're going to throw a card down and we're going to try to say the word in between. And this is supposed to be fun. And then we played it the first time. And the amount like this was Telestration's level of laughter happening that first time with my Monday night group of uh, generally Euro players. Right. Like like I, I don't know if I'd call them hardcore gamers, but definitely like experienced gamers laughing our butts off with this silly game where we're just trying to say the same word together. So that is definitely my, my, my number one on the list. These aren't in any particular order, but that was one that was a complete surprise. Yeah, I know. Medium was 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 definitely that, that for me. Um, I had sort of went, yeah, yeah, that'll be amusing. Uh, and then the first time uh, Dee and I actually yeah. uh, sat down and, and, and put two cards down and words left her brain. Um, and and there was, she was unable to speak uh, just because it was that and it was just that sort of thing and and the laughter just just kept going so uh, so that was medium. All right, next um, goes to the Windsor Comic Con where we were there with uh, the CG Realm, a local game store, and we were there to promote our Extra Life event and try to raise some money. And as part of it. Jeremy, the owner of the store, had donated this new game that he swore was going to be hot. And it was a game from the Funko Pop people with little Funko Pops in it. And it was the Harry Potter version. And I've said this before on the show, I am not a Potterhead. That's something that came out after, long after I, well, I still read books. But, like, I wasn't reading young adult fiction, that's for sure. Um, Something my kids love. So I have no, and, and Pops never did anything for me. Although I have seen some cool ones, like the Gelatinous Cube one. So I was like, what the heck's this game? Why are people going to care that much? And, and I just figured people would care because it's Harry Potter and Pops. So at that event, Jeff, uh, Jeff Seuss, fan of the show, patron of the show, and I were there doing demos and we sat down and I flipped through the rule book and I read how to do this. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. This is like, this is like a, a I don't know, a, a Warhammer game. Like this is a miniature skirmish battle game with relatively complex rules like that you have different movement points and everyone it's asymmetric everyone's unique and they have different spells and the spells have different cooldown values and there's different scenarios so you can play king of the hill or you can play capture the flag or you can play like a football like game i was blown away by how good a game this was which seems like other people have figured this out too like this is one where i got home and scrapped everything we were going to talk about on the podcast the next week and scrapped what review i was going to write to write about this game because i felt gamers needed to know that there was a game here i the, the the all of like i only played the harry potter one but they're all compatible they all use the same rules this is literally a miniature war game a skirmish skirmish war game and prospero hall the designers have confirmed it was actually made by hardcore skirmish war gamers sat down and went how can we make a intro level war game that'll that fits with the pop theme of just fun yeah, no, I, I still haven't gotten a Funko uh, onto the table. And again, I never I never got the Funko Pop mystique. Yeah. There, it, I don't understand how there are however many thousand different Pops and why people collect them like candy. But, I mean, they're obviously a thing. And then to all of a sudden have this become a game. Um, now, again, because it, of, of who Funko's gaming department is, we, we sort of understand that a little better. You know, now. Now, but uh, at the time, it was a complete shock to see yeah, it. Yeah, baffling. Yeah, 
And that was the Funkoverse games. All right, up next is Hamster Roll. This is one of, probably my favorite, all-time favorite dexterity games. That and Pitch Car fight back and forth. But you know what? I get Hamster Roll to the table more often. So based on the Bellhop's law, it has to beat out Pitch Car and that. And what it is, Hamster Roll is this big wooden hamster wheel with slats on it, and you're stacking blocks on it. And it's, a, it's a dexterity game, right? And when you see it, you're like, eh, hey, this is a fun dexterity game. But what? blows me away about this game is the fact that there is a lot of tactics and possibly even some strategy like planning multiple moves ahead and picking which blocks to place where to put them and then there's that the the evolution of gameplay where you realize another part of the game is looking what the next player has to place so you look at what pieces your opponents have left and then try to make your placement make theirs more difficult having all that in a simple stacking game blows me away yeah, no, absolutely. Hamster Roll is one of, if not my, you know, one of my top favorite dexterity games. Uh, and especially because where you play it matters just as yeah. much as who you play it with or, or anything else. The actual surface that you're playing on becomes a part of the game, mm -hmm. um, for better or worse, depending on uh, what kind of a table you're on. Uh, and that was Hamster Roll. Uh, now, up, up next, we've got Go Cuckoo. Mm -hmm. And this is one that really jumped out of nowhere at us. It was uh, Mo and D at Origins. Uh, and who was it who, who kind of was demanding that you try uh, a silly game? Pa patron of the show, Wayne, the Star Wars guy, Humphrey. There we go. Wayne, Wayne, so Wayne Humphrey had this game that everyone had to try and everyone had to try. And, and really, you open it up and it, the, your first thought is, you're actually going to get me to play a pickup sticks? I mean, yep. really? Come on. Because that's what they are. They are literally just pickup sticks. But then you realize, no, no, the container, the whole, the, 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 the container of the game is part of the game and you start experimenting. And the first time you play it, it's like, oh, this is silly. And then you realize, oh, or, you know, someone will do something you haven't seen done before. And you, your brain opens up to more possibilities. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you've gone from a simple game where you're just trying to lean sticks against each other and balance an egg on it to evolving this giant mesh of sticks extending far out from the actual, you know, small little container in the middle mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, testing your knowledge of physics and balance yes. uh, in, in a massive, you know, hard thinking game with swearing and cursing and, 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 you know, people throwing tantrums because, you know, something rolled a little bit too far as they gently put their egg down and there was sweat on their fingers. It is, Amazing. And uh, that was Go Cuckoo, a game released for Haba, by Haba for kids for Easter about what, 2016 or 2017. This isn't a new one. Yep. All right. One that surprised me. Now, this is another one. Uh, podcasters got me hyped about this. Everyone was talking about this game, and I probably would have completely skipped over it. Uh, that is Ravensburgers Horrified. I hate to admit it. I've admitted already I haven't seen Jaws. I This is just proof of it. I, I am not a horror fan. Even old school black and white classic. I have not seen a single movie that is featured in the game Horrified. I've not seen Dracula or Frankenstein and his Bride or the creature from the, the black, blue, the whatever, some colored lagoon. Creatures from the lagoon, whatever color it is. Or the Invisible Man. I've never seen any of those. The, the universal monsters were not something I grew up with. But, so I didn't care about this game. Plus... 
it just it's it's a mass market. It's got miniatures that kind of look like plastic army men. They're not all that detailed. Just didn't do anything for me. But everyone was going on about how this game's so good. And the one comment that got me is better than Pandemic. I kept hearing better than Pandemic, better co-op than Pandemic. And longtime fans of the show know I'm not a big fan of Pandemic, but I do dig good co-op games and i'm always looking for the better than pandemic that i can break out when i roast a game night and people are like can we please play pandemic and i'm like i gotta find anything else i can suggest because i am not a fan of pandemic and there we have horrified which is an amazing game it's actually a co-op pickup and deliver game which you probably wouldn't realize until you played it a couple times that's got completely different styles of play depending on which monsters you face and it's scalable like if you want to play with your kids just throw one monster down if you want to challenge yourself throw down four or five we've never beaten five four oh, once out of all the times we tried uh this is a game uh because of all the different things going on and the fact that if characters have different powers and different cards you don't get the quarterbacking as much as you do in games like pandemic it can happen but we found it's not that much i i am a huge fan of this game. This is one that I got a review copy, um, and I expected to review it, go, yeah, okay, it's neat, it's it's a bit better than Pandemic, and pass it on, and I plan on keeping this one. Yeah, no, it was interesting, because I remember the unboxing, uh, and it was, you know, great quality, and we were really impressed by, you know, well, this is the stuff that's coming out, uh, even the way that one page was, there was a one page presented right on the top of the, the, oh, the yeah. label on the back of the, the board that was mm -hmm. presented as you open the box. They really did a great job presenting it. And it, it felt a lot like it was going to be that sort of flash in the pan. Look, this is, this looks fantastic. It looked great on the table, and then we're never going to play it again. And then we sat down and started playing it. Yeah. And, and. It was it was great, and the only concern I really have about that game is the potential for quarterbacking. Yeah. But other than that, and you know, as long as you've got a good group who are willing to cooperate and 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 not you know be overbearing in that way, it is a fantastic game. And that was horrified. All right, this is another surprise one. This is a complete surprise. King me. Uh, I got this one from Ravensburger, uh, basically on a whim. Uh, Ravensburg, we had a problem with one of Ravensburg's products. I wrote and complained about this product, and in return for uh, not being able to fix the problem I had, they sent us some free games. So, thumbs up on um, like customer support there, Ravensburger. You did awesome. This wasn't a review thing, and what it was is, I basically they said we could pick like you can get a number of games, and I started going through their catalog, and I own most of the good ones, right? And I'm like, huh, I don't know. And I'm looking through and I'm like, I don't know, how about King Me, right? So we kind of picked it randomly. And I looked at it, I'm like, what, like, what is it? It's, it's supposed to have improved checkers. Like, come on, it's tried and true checkers. What are you going to do with this? And then it showed up and I did an unboxing video with my daughter, which was kind of fun. And I started seeing it and I'm like, whoa, this board's like broken into all different areas. And then we looked at the cards and I sat down and read the rules and I'm like, wow, they turned checkers into an area majority game where having your parts, your, your, checkers i guess in different parts of the board at different time of the game are going to score you points that's brilliant and then added to that they had a really interesting rule for kinging and how much kings are points and like this game is seriously good like the, this is a game which just still hasn't happened because of the pandemic but i want to play charles like this is on that that chess level i think you could get there in this game like th this is something that like 
anyone who likes checkers, if you're a fan, has to play this because this really does improve checkers. And even if you're not, this is so much cooler than checkers. Just by having to get your pieces in the right spot at the right time, and you also get points for capturing your opponents, and you also get points for kinging. Really solid game. Like this one, like completely out of nowhere. I I thought we were getting some cheap checkers knockoff, and we, instead we got an awesome evolution of checkers. Well, that was King Me. All right, Camel Up is my next one. And yes, Camel Up, not Camel Cup, though I think in the new edition they kind of made it so it's easier to read. Uh, a dice-based racing game with silly-looking camel meeples that supposedly can stack on top of each other. That, that doesn't seem that cool to me. This is one I literally did not care until playing it at a game night with, I think it plays up to 10 people. It's eight or 10 people. It's a big group. So it's either eight or 10 people, whatever it was. And my God, everyone had so much fun, like laughing and challenging. Like there's two things that, that make this a killer app. That's this game. Um, first off is the fact that it's a racing game where you don't own a camel. So it's not a racing game where you're trying to get your camel to win. You're basically betting on which camel is going to come in first and which camel is going to come in last, as well as which camel is going to be ahead every round. And that every round bet, is, is brilliant because it keeps you interested the whole race. And then there's the whole camel up part where when the meeples move on top of each other and the bottom one moves, they all move with it. That like the, the trying to figure out the odds in that game blows my brain. And I've done it where I sat there going, okay, it's a die three. If you roll a three, you're going to go there. But if you pull the blue die, this one's going to go out. Like it's just so much going on in that game probability wise that affects those bets so it is a fantastic game i was blown away by this that was one of those games where i played it at that game night at the game store and bought a copy before leaving because i'm like i gotta bring this home yeah that was camel up uh, I, i've played that one at the party uh, a couple of parties and uh, you know it's just an enjoyable group game you can all sort of you know have a you know stand around while uh, while you're having a drink and uh, and play now next up we have build microsoft or mine Wow. Microsoft. <laughs> Minecraft Builders and Biomes, which in Minecraft is technically owned by Microsoft. There you uh, go. Now, especially when compared to the card game that I had originally had, which was a Minecraft branded card game and was absolutely horrific. Uh, it didn't even get the basic Minecraft facts right, um, as well as just being a really boring card game. Now, we got this game, and we weren't sure what to expect, but it was one of those things. You know, I'm a big Minecraft fan. My family's a big Minecraft fan. So I actually reached out to uh, the people at Mojang, uh, and they gave us a contact uh, and, and uh, got Ravensburger involved, and that's what got us the, the review copy. And we did the unboxing, and it was interesting, but nothing really outstanding, I think, with the, with the, when it came to the unboxing. You know, a bunch of cards. Some boards. Cubes were nice. The cubes, the, the cubes were very nicely cubes. done. Yeah, yeah they're the the Teotihuacan sort of uh, side, or not Teotihuacan, um, um, Imhotep, Imhotep, uh, cubes. Yeah, very nice. Uh, and then we sat down, and we played the game, and realized, oh wait, there's 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 some depth here. And then we played uh -huh. the game again and went, wow, this is not an easy game. Um, and while it's it really was easy for my kids to sit down and start playing it, um. There are very different levels you can play the game on uh, and the, the depth of thinking involved to really play the game well mm. just pushes it into that next level where it is not just a simple, oh, look, let's build something in Minecraft. No, no, you have to plan for the, you know, you're scoring over three rounds yeah. to really maximize uh, to do. And it's great because 
you have to also have to make sure you're trying to stop other people. You know, oh, look, they're building this. So you need to make sure if you can to score one of that, you know, score, score the one that they're going to need to triple their score sort of thing. Yeah, there aren't many games that are that strategic, like that you're planning the end game out on your first turn. Yeah, it, it's crazy. And, and like Sean said, simple mechanics, like mechanically, that simple game, what you'd expect from a Minecraft game. But strategy wise, wow, that was Minecraft Builders and Biomes. Um, you can tell we're just like Ravensburger has put out a lot of good games because we've got another one here. And we're going we're gonna to have a little shout out at the end, I think, because of this. And that is Jaws. This is one um, we just reviewed a couple weeks ago. This is another case of a licensed game I expected to not be good, as they have not been for years. I am certain there's probably a Jaws roll and move out there. Um, this is a very neat one versus many board game. And it's got elements from like Specter Ops or um, Scotland Yard being the more classic game of one person trying to hide while everyone else is trying to catch them. And then a second part, which is this dramatic battle between the shark and the the uh, a crew of the boat, uh, recreates some key scenes from the movie, or at least so I'm told, because again, I haven't seen the movie, um, has some really solid hidden movement rules, especially with the shark having um, four abilities they can use that kind of kind of hide their trail. Uh, just really solid game. I'm not going to go into detail because we just covered this one recently, but I was extremely impressed by how much more of a game this was than I thought it would be for a movie tie-in. Uh, interestingly, I didn't find a roll and move, but there is a 1975 um, sort of uh, taking things from a shark's mouth with a giant oh, molded geez. plastic shark and waiting for the shark to snap snap down on your fingers sort okay. of thing. Dexterity game. Uh, and that, is, that that one would be a, would have, is Jaws from 1975. But this is Jaws from 2018. 18 or 19. Uh, oh, yeah. No, sorry, I should have. I'm confusing uh, things. The enough. modern 2019. Uh, so it's 20. So the 2019 Ravensburger Jaws, uh, again, is is a much more deep and uh, really, again, it's two board games in one on top yes. of everything else. So that was Jaws 2019 from Ravensburger. Uh, next, Quirkle. Uh, this is one of those mass market games that you can find anywhere. Like you could walk into, well, I guess in the States, there's no more Toys R Us. I don't know what the equivalent toy store is in the States anymore. You walk into a Target or a Walmart and see this game sitting next to all the other games like Trouble and Sorry and stuff like that and probably quickly overlook it. But it is so good. This is basically Scrabble with shapes where instead of having to form rule words, you're matching either the shapes or sorry, not matching the opposite. You're, you're making rows of all the same color or all the same shape and or all different. Like one thing has to match either the shape or the color in your row and not both because that would duplicate and you can't make duplicates. And if you can get, I think it's a set of six played out. That's a quirkle. It's worth extra points. Scoring is pretty much that Scrabble scoring where you score your row plus anything it's connected to. I This game is the game that I break out when family members come over or when I talk to people playing board games, like, Oh, I don't really like hobby board games or I, I don't like complex games like Catan. That's when I'll break out a game like Quirkle. And that was Quirkle. <laughs> 
Next, I have a game I had never heard of uh, called Zentico. I had to throw this on the list because I was approached by Zentico is the name of the company that makes the game Zentico. And I don't have a designer's name. It says it's designed by Zentico. Maybe that's last name. Uh, they contacted me on Instagram. And this was one of the first games I ever reviewed as the tabletop bellhop. And at the time, I was just like, whoa, someone found me. They like us. They're sending us a game. That's cool. So I signed up for it. And then when it showed up, I looked at it and I'm like, what the heck? This is basically like nine men's Morris, right? Like it's you're, you're trying to make a, a row on a grid and you can slide pieces one spot, right? And at first, our first play, I'm like, yeah, it's it's okay. It's, it's Connect 4 meets nine men's Morris. That was with two players. But then once we played three player, this game became brilliant. This game is so good three-player is an excellent three-player experience combined with the fact that the production on this is top-notch this is in a uh whatever pu leather it's a type of fake leather so it's in a pu leather case that rolls up and very portable and this is what i consider now the beach game this is the game i bring out when my kids are going to a splash pad because nothing in this game can get ruined it can be dropped in the mud it can get soaking wet it starts raining it's fine and it is a solid experience now two-player it's it's okay. Uh, like I, I guess it's a step up from tic tac toe, but it's not as good as say playing checkers or chess. It's okay. Uh, you can get to a point where um, you just keep doing the same move back and forth, and no one wins. The game goes on too long. But three player, it is so hard to not make a move that gives someone else the win, and that's where it really shines. Right. Well, that is Zentico. Now, next up, we have the Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle. It's a simple family deck building game, uh, but with a ramped up difficulty system that goes from absolute beginner to, oh my God, in about five rounds and only keeps scaling up. Uh, so far, we haven't seen the potions uh, expansion, but uh, we know that the monsters, uh, uh, the monsters book of monsters is um, crazy. I mean, it, again, we, we have, we beat, the first one on, on Monster Book of Monsters so far, but we still haven't uh, managed to break through the second one yet. Um, and again, you know, it's a co-op, so it should be difficult. You don't, you don't want to be always mm -hmm. succeeding. Um, but the way it takes you through and, and, and builds you up, adding components and adding aspects to the game uh, with each chapter of the book, essentially, is really a fantastic mechanic uh, that allowed me to bring my, my kids you know, from never having played anything deck builder at all to being comfortable playing a pretty heavy, you know, reasonably mm -hmm. heavy, heavy deck builder without any problem at all. So, uh, yeah, this one blew me away because it was a good Harry Potter game. Because before that, anything I tried is like we, we bought like the Golden Snitch card game, which makes as much fun sense as Quidditch because you play. But then whoever plays the snitch wins. And we're like, kind of why are we playing this game? If it just we could just shuffle and whoever gets the snitch wins and get the same result. Um, and some of the like you would talked about Harry Potter Clue before and just how terrible that is. So like I really wasn't expecting much from this. And I got to admit, like I'm, I'm kind of bashing on here. But again, this is from the op and they were not known for good nice heavy detailed deck builder style games they were known for making versions of monopoly and some theme games that at the time weren't so hot so like the fact you were the one that discovered this one i probably wouldn't have touched this until you showed it to us yeah. and it what also blew me about this is my daughter taught me how to play i have never read the rule book for harry potter hogwarts battle and it's just awesome that my kid taught me to play a game yep absolutely 
And that was Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle. All right, King Domino is my next one. This is another game I would have overlooked. I it, it's a it's a hobby game based on dominoes with a fantasy theme. Eh, that that no reason I need to pick this up. But I started to hear positive reviews again. Uh, podcasters talking about it, YouTube content creators going on about how good this game is, and I still wasn't quite sold on it. But we are at an extra life event. This goes back a few years. We were at Brimstone Games, one of the local game stores here in Windsor, and just trying to kill time. It was like early Sunday morning or early Saturday morning. I, I remember being fairly out of it, whatever day it was. It must have been early Sunday morning, and grabbing a demo copy of this that they had on their shelves. Cause I'm like, Oh, I heard this is easy and podcasters talking about it. And Deanna and I sat down and we played the first round and we're like, wow, that that's kind of neat. I kind of like that. Like besides the, how are you oh, and then the drafting tiles and the order you go in? All right, let's play again. And we played again. And then I'm like, Oh wait, the crowns, the crowns are huge. Like, man, I'm just, I'm going to graft all crowns. And then I played the third round and I'm like, wait, wait, you're drafting that. If you're drafting that, I'm going to draft this. And you get to that evolution of any drafting game, right? Where you go from the worrying about your own stuff to worrying about your opponent's stuff. And then that whole, do I grab something that's good for me, but bad for them? We After that third round, I walked over to the shelf, grabbed the copy of King Domino, walked over to the checkout, put their demo copy back, and then opened my shiny new copy and played a fourth round. I am a huge fan of King Domino. Like, if you want a lightning quick, like, five to ten minute game that really does require tactics and strategy, that there almost is nothing better. And that was King Domino, which reminds me, we need to get another game of that up on uh, Board Game Yeah, Room. we could at some point. Maybe we should maybe do a night of uh, King Domino with uh, John. Yeah, you might be interested in that. All right, this is going to be a shocking one to some people because my next one is going to be a version of Risk. Uh, Risk Star Wars Edition. Uh, if you can find it, this one was dirt cheap for a while. It's a little hard to find now. There is a Black Edition, which I personally think is worth picking up. The Star Wars Risk Black Edition, if not just the original. And... What you expect when you see this box is risk, right? Like, except with a new map. And that is so not what this game is. This is actually a remake and retheme of Queen's Gambit, which is a classic, very well-regarded, worth-a-fortune Star Wars game that came out when Episode One hit the theaters. This is a modern version of that. And no, not quite as well-regarded as the original, but still very positive, because what's happening here is it's a card game where on every card you're going to get to do two things. But the thing is, there are three battles happening at once, and this is set in the Jedi era. There's the space battle up above Endor with the Death Star and the Millennium Falcon and the Calamari Cruisers and all the X-Wings and everything battling it out. And i got to admit, that part's very risk-like with rolling D6s to see if you blow up other ships. But then there's also the Han and his team with Leia and Chewie trying to blow up the shield generator on Endor with the uh, other player playing the Stormtroopers. And then you also have Luke having a lightsaber battle with Darth Vader in front of the Emperor. And that is more of a push and pull track. So, you know, you're in, you start, the con starts in the middle, but if you play a plus two for Luke, it moves one way and then it moves the other. And you're doing, you're fighting on three fronts at once, but you can only ever affect two fronts at a time. And you get a hand of five cards and there's predicting what your opponent's doing. Like for a game with the word risk on the cover, it just amazing. Now, I'll admit, it's not the best game in the world. Like, I'm, I, I'm not trying to oversell it. It's not the next Twilight Imperium. It's not Star Wars. Um, What's the big Star Star Wars Battalion or Battlefleet? I can't remember the big Star Wars game that everyone Battle loves. Battlefleet? Battlefleet. That doesn't sound right either. 
what is the big Star Wars Rebellion? That's it. Star Wars Rebellion, the big Star Wars in a box game. You're not getting that. This is still a lighter game. This is one I can play with my kids. It's still mass market Hasbro, but compared to pretty much every other edition of Risk ever made, this blows it away. All right. Well, that was Star Wars Risk Edition. Now, is there a what is the difference between the Star Wars Risk Edition and the Star Wars a Risk Star Wars Edition and Risk Star Wars Original Trilogy Edition? Do you know? The original trilogy edition is Risk with oh, a different map. Oh, it's just map. Risk. Okay, it's it's a variant of Risk. Okay. Right. So we are looking Take for the Risk. Can we call Risk it? Star Wars? Edition. Star Wars Edition. <laughs> yes, I know. And and there's also Star Wars: The Clone Wars Risk, and there's others. This is Risk: Colon Star Wars Edition, which is in a red box, and there is the Black Edition, which is it's got better card quality. You actually get a miniature for the Millennium Falcon and the Death Star. It's it's it, it's just quality improvements. A really nice box insert, which is something you don't expect from Hasbro. The Black Edition, if you can find, it, is definitely worth it. That's what I own. Right. And that was then, Risk. Star- sorry, Risk Star Wars Edition. <laughs> Sticking with mass market games, we have Blockus. Uh, this is another one you're going to find on the shelf next to games like Don't Step On It and Pimple Pete. Um, this is a puzzle game where you're using polyominoes to fill in a grid. And the brilliant part in this is the way, the shape of the tiles, the number of tiles you get, how many tiles will fit on the board, and the fact that when you place you at the pace so your tiles only touch diagonally, which lets your opponent sneak in on the other corners, basically. This is, uh, you're trying to play all of your tiles before any of your opponents. This game is way deeper than you would ever think. Like, this is a tactical, strategic game. You're counting pieces, you're, uh, you're backstabbing your partners, you're you're cutting people off. Like Blockus to me is up there with games like the Duke and Chess and like I, I love this game. This is something playing two players, you be, be, the only disadvantage I would say is two player you play two colors, which is okay. Three players, there's a fake third fourth player, which is kind of weird, where every turn someone has to put it. But if you can get a four player game of Blockus going, it is fantastic. All right, well, that was Blockus. Now, next up, Ticket to Ride New York. Neither of us are really fans of Ticket to Ride. Yet, however, despite that, this short, succinct version ended up being a really solid, especially two-player game. But it does work up to four players. And it's just enough to scratch that train game itch, but it doesn't overstay its welcome. Uh, I mean, it's, I think, the first time we sat down to play it, from opening the box to finishing the game was like 20, maybe 25 yeah. minutes <laughs> without ever having, you know, looked at inside the box before. Mm-hmm. And, no, I agree. Know, it's it's that fun bit, but you, it doesn't overstay its welcome like a game of Ticket to Ride can. Yeah, I, I, this was a huge surprise to me. I think I got it as a gift. Like, I can't even think of why I own Ticket to Ride New York. Yeah, it was, it was a it gift was... you got from one of your family members, yeah. pretty sure. <laughs> Which is fair. They, they yeah. probably found it at chapters, right? And and fair enough. But yeah, I, I actually love this game. Like it's, it's just, it's got that cutthroat. We usually play two, three games in a row. Once you know the game, it's like 10 minutes. The other thing is my kids can play this one, including my youngest, who has difficulty learning games. And the fact I can play this with my girls is fantastic. And it's a great next step, right? Like now that I've got them hooked on that, the next time we have a Christmas Eve party, I could now have them play Ticket to Ride, which we've done with the oldest. So yeah, I was extremely 
impressed by Ticket to Ride New York. And I have to assume the other city games that are calling it now, the city series, are just as good. Yeah, London, I know, was the there's other There's London, now sure. there's a newer one, too, that's out that includes some of the rules from Europe, which where you, you can push your luck to try to go through tunnels. Yeah. I'm really impressed by that. Like, I again, I would have never bought that. Like, that was a gift, and I was like, eh, let's give it a shot. I'm like, yep. wow, this is, this is good. Amsterdam, thank you, Everyday Board Games. And that was Ticket to Ride New York. All right, Homeland the Game. This one is totally a hidden gem. This is one of my my strongest recommendations to pick up in this episode for people who like a certain style of game. Now, I know nothing about the series. I, I know it's a U.S., the whatever, Department of Homeland Security versus Terrorist thing. But that's about it. I've never seen the show. I am not American. It doesn't, I, I you know, 911 happened. That sucks. But it didn't happen to my country. So I'm not tied to the events in this game. So I am just looking at it from a mechanical standpoint. And this is a fantastic hidden role game. Um, and I am not a fan of social deduction, so there, there's another thing saying this. This one you can usually find cheap, and what I love about this one is there's the good guys, right? There's Homeland Security, and they are trying to prevent terrorist actions happening, and if they prevent enough of them, they win the game. Then you have the terrorists who are trying to tear, to, to conduct terrorist activities, and if they do enough ter- 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 uh, can't even say it. terrorist activities, they win the game. Great. There's your two factions, right? And you don't know who's who. But then there is also the media faction. And what they want, and I think this is a brilliant commentary on the media, is that they want some terrorist plots to happen because you want ratings, but not too many. And they end up winning the game if there's a balance. And like... This to me, and it uses the skill point system where you're playing skill cards into a pile and then you shuffle them and reveal to see if the thing succeeded or failed. And there's things where you can bring in army troops and stuff. If you like Battlestar Galactica, which to me is still one of my favorite games of all time, without that chance that someone's going to roleplay their character and screw it up and without it taking six hours, check out Homeland. Like it is a really solid hidden trader style game. And that was Homeland the Game. Now, another TV series tie-in is Sons of Anarchy. Uh, Sons of Anarchy, the board game. This is another one you can usually find cheap. Both Homeland and Sons of Anarchy, I think, expected to do well based on the licenses. They printed too many copies. I don't know. I don't know why it's available so cheap. Uh, This is the District 19 of my list. I hadn't played the District 19 game that Prayerborn mentioned. District 12. District 12, sorry. See, again, I don't watch these things or read these things. Actually, I did watch the movies. Anyway, the, the Hunger Games game. Being a Euro, that this is this. This is Sons of Anarchy, the board game, is a worker placement game where you're going to send your bikers to different spots on the board, like strip clubs and dive bars, and collect resources like guns and contraband. I like. I would have never pegged Sons of Anarchy to be a medium weight Euro with auction mechanics and bluffing elements. Like this is a solid game uh, for people who dig the mechanics. It has been rethemed to a Dungeons and Dragons theme. Uh, which I totally should have put the notes. Is it Dragonfire or is it one of the other D&D games? There is a D&D re-theme of this. If you don't like the whole biker gangs and guns and contraband, uh, you can pick that up. Vault of Dragons, I think it's called. Vault of Dragons, yes. Yes, Vault of Dragons. Took me a second. I got it before anyone typed it in the chat. Oh, no one has. Yeah, Vault of Dragons is a Dungeons and Dragons update version of it. It's seriously good game. Like, if you like the theme personally, that theme I'm not going to play that with my kids, right? Whereas I'll play the D and D one. But I was again shocked. Like someone convinced me that like you got to buy this. I'm like I'm like it's a five dollar game. How can it be good? 
Plus, it's Sons of Anarchy, which I've never seen, and I don't care about biker gangs. I'm no biker. I might be a big guy with long hair and a beard, but I don't ride a bike. I don't have tattoos. But sit down and play this like, oh, no, it's like a solid Euro. You're like, oh, I'm going to go here and collect the guns, and I'm going to go here. And you have these scenes where you're bidding, and you have to actually like, reveal your hand. And I'm like, like, real Euro mechanics. Well, I mean, to be fair, Gale Force 9 does do Tyrants of the Underdark, Firefly yep. the game. You know, they've they've got a, a, a good uh, a good solid base on which to build True. a game about bikers. and. <laughs> but that was Sons of Anarchy from Gale Force 9. All right, this is one Deanna suggested I put on the list, and I had to agree with her when she, she came up with it. And that is, hey, that's my fish. Uh, this looks like a silly kid's game. It's by Fantasy Flight, which is a good indication it's not. But, like, this could have easily been a Blue Orange or a Hobbit game, in my opinion, with um, a bunch of hex tiles with one to three fish on them. And depending on the edition, you have very cute-looking penguins of some type, whether they're plastic, whether they're meeple or whatever. I per Mine personally is meeple. And you, you lay out the board. All you do on your turn is you're going to move your penguin in a straight line as far as it can go, and then you get to keep the tile it moved off of. The thing is, the tile you're picking up is the board. So as you're playing, the board, the ice sheet, is getting smaller and smaller. And it's all about planning ahead and making sure you get the good t three fish tiles and, most importantly, cutting your opponents off. That is a big part of the game. Uh, you got a good combination of strategic plates, planning ahead, and tactics of reacting to how your opponents play. This is, again, it's one of those almost chess-like games when you sit down with people who know how to play. Yeah, and that was, hey, that's my fish. Next up, The Climbers, which is not actually a dexterity game. Yeah. It looks like a dex game. You shouldn't play it while drunk. It's got little markers and blocks and ladders that all move throughout the game, but it's not a dex game. You just happen to need a little bit more than drunken dexterity in order to manage what is actually a complex game about movement and paths and blocking your opponents in a limited and ever-changing spatial layout. Yeah, I dig games that make you think spatially, and that's what The Climbers does. Like, it, the, one of the big indicators, that game's not just a silly dex game. It's put out by Capstone Games. Capstone, like, put out heavy games. And I'm like, what the heck is this block stacking game? That was another one I heard from podcasters, and I'm like, I got to try this, and it's so good. And that was The Climbers. Uh, interestingly, they put out a family edition of that one. Uh, just last, I have not seen that. Just last year, uh, there's a Climbers Family Edition. I'm not sure what uh, what the difference is, but it's uh, uh, with fewer I, nope. components. No ladders, no blocks. Still, cubes still accommodating two to five players, <laughs> uh, but with less comp fewer components. How odd! Interesting. <laughs> Again, that was the Climbers. Next, a big, heavy, meaty game that I really was not expecting to be big, heavy, or meaty, and that is Dungeon Lords. When I saw this game from Czech Games Edition and the picture with the little minion on the cover, I thought I was getting a board game version of Dungeon Lords, the computer game. Or not Dungeon Lords, that's the name of the board game. What is it? Dungeon Keeper. Dungeon Keeper, the computer game, which is a game all about digging the right tunnels and abusing your your little goblin and dropping things into pits to get more monsters. And it's, it's almost an action game. Like there's strategy, but it's, it's, it's an action, silly over the top game. Dungeon Lords is one of the heaviest games I own. It is a game that the designer, I think it's Isaac Childers. No, uh, Vlada Shavato. Sorry. I think it's Vlada Shavato. Yeah. Uh, get, gives you a number of tutorials to play through. And 
explain how monsters work and how the rooms work and how to play out when the heroes raid your dungeon. And it's complex enough that Vlada actually says, now that you played through this tutorial, ask the players who have played through it if they still want to play, because this game is not for anyone, everyone. That is literally in the rulebook, and that is what this game is like. This is heavy, meaty. Like, you tried to play it with us on, I think, Yukata. Yeah, and the, the, the interface and not having not having actually sat down and, and gone through things made that one just, I mean, oh. it's a three and a half on, on BGA or BGG. Yeah. Like, it's uh, not that heavy. It feels heavier than many other games. Yeah. Well, it, three and a half isn't exactly light. That's yes, you know. Yeah, that that the surprise here. Like this was, it, I knew it would be. It's it's a games edition, right? Like I expect relative heaviness there. Like they made Pulsar, but I wasn't expecting twice as heavy as Pulsar. Yep. So that was Dungeon Lords. All right, a game we talk about far too often on the show, it seems. I don't know why. It just seems to come up every episode lately. Is Chocolatiers from Daily Magic Games. Now, this was one. The only reason I took it is I love Daily Magic Games. I have been hooked on their games since discovering them at Origins 2015, 2016. One of those. Uh, when Shadow Kingdoms of Valeria was brand new. And I am just a fanboy of them. So I went to their booth at Origins and I... Literally, I fanboyed out for a while and I said, I will take every game that I have not played here and bring it home and review it for you. And the main one I was hoping to get at the time was Horizons, as well as a couple packs for Valeria I didn't have yet. And with that, they gave me this game Chocolatiers in a small box. I'm like, okay, sure. The next morning, Deanna and I are sitting at the uh, the restaurant in the hotel and I brought that with me to, to look at the rules while we're having breakfast. And I opened it up and I'm looking and I'm like, what what is this like it's it's a box of chocolates game and they spent so much money they put uv coating on the chocolates to make them shiny like and then i started reading the rules and i'm like okay so it's ticket to ride because i'm trying to graph chalk like i'm trying to get sets of colors or sets of chocolates to play to put a tableau in front of me and i okay sure oh well i i, I guess i i got a copy of horizons to check out <laughs> then we actually didn't play it like, I, I had no interest trying it at Origins. Didn't break it out until weeks later. Here back at Windsor, and we played the first game. And that's a game where we talked about before that has eureka moments, where you're playing and suddenly you're like, oh, wait, where which which one I'm drafting? That one's, like, there's there's a situational positioning. The thing, same thing I liked in Climbers, aspect of building your chocolate box. And then there's the whole thing we've talked about before about with um, any drafting game. You go through that evolution of, I only care about my stuff. Oh, I care about my opponents. And then I have to worry about everyone's stuff. So there's that aspect of it. And then there's the being able to trade in cards. And then there's the fact you realize the count of the cards in the deck is a huge part. That there are certain, like some chocolates are more rare than others, right? And it just, from what I expected the game to be, it was so much better. Like the, the set collection elements were better. The tableau building was better. The having to watch your opponents was key. It was definitely not multiplayer uh, solitaire. I, I was kind of blown away by just how solid this game was. And that was Chocolatiers. All right. One of my kids games that I play more than they do and have more fun showing off to other people is Battle Sheep. Uh, this is a blue orange game game that I actually think should be marketed at adults, like rethemed somehow. Because I, I the kids, at least the age we shot them to have just didn't get the brilliance of this game. Uh this is similar to Hey That My Fish in a way, except that you have your your hex grid and it's just laid out. Like you have it set at the beginning. And then you have a huge pile 
of almost poker chip like cheap. These are these are really nice chips. I don't know. They're not poker chips. They're green plastic. I don't know exactly what they are. And what you're going to do is you're going to take any number from that stack and move in a straight line and put that stack down. And then your opponent's going to do that. And you're going to keep splitting your piles, trying to take over the, as much of the board as possible. And it's all about cutting people off and, and making sure you don't get yourself cut off. Like if you have a pile of seven sheep and that gets cut off, you just, you're going to lose. There's no way you're going to get those sheep out. So you see them going for your pile of seven. So you run six of those seven across the board. Really neat game that's all about splitting up these pile of sheep. That, like I said, I, I swear this would sell better marketed to adults with some kind i don't know what adult theme but put a star wars theme on it where you're spending stormtroopers around moss eisley or something and it, it would do better than it would now because the kids just they, they want to play with it the kids love this as a toy they love the the sheep pieces they love the the the, the chips or whatever the the sheep are made out of but uh, like i maybe i should try it again with them now that they're older but the only reason they kept it is they like playing with the pieces. And I think now, maybe now that they're in their teens, they, they'll, they'll appreciate Battleship for what it is. And that was Battleship. All right, I got one more here. I wasn't going to, I didn't have this one on the list, but earlier today I was checking out the awesome Everyday Board Games uh, podcast being recorded here on Twitch at twitch.tv slash everydayboardgames. And the Daniels were talking about games with table presence and they brought up photosynthesis. And I was like, ooh, I need to throw that one in there because that is a game that completely surprised me by how heavy it is, how thinky it is, and how much, how strategic, how much you have to plan ahead. Now, this is a blue-orange game. So when I see blue-orange games, I think light games. I don't expect anything heavy from them. Like, Battleship's surprisingly good, but it's still, like, kids could figure it out. Photosynthesis is all about planting trees with these amazing 3D cardboard trees that you build. And the whole thing is you plant your trees, and the sun moves around the board, and there's three different heights. It's either three or four. It's been a while since I played this one. Three or four different heights of trees, and they provide shade depending on where the sun is. And if your tree's in shade, it doesn't grow, where if it's in the sun, it's going to grow. And then eventually your trees are going to produce seedlings, and the seedlings are going to go out, and you got to put those seedlings in the way of the wind. Like there's just this whole planning ahead for where the sun's going to be and trying to make shade for your opponent's trees while keeping your trees in the sun. And honestly, it was so much heavier than I thought that I did not enjoy my first couple of plays because it's just not what I wanted. And to be honest, we are on our honeymoon and we are in the brewer suite at a brewery out in the county and we had had a few drinks and photosynthesis is not a game you want to play after a few drinks. And it on a, uh, in a way left a bad taste in my mouth because it was so different than what I expected. And I feel bad. What I need to do, I still own it, is I need to give this game a chance and sit down expecting it to be as heavy as it is and and play it with people expecting that. The other thing, too, is I was expecting fast, and this is not a fast game. This is an AP-prone, slow-thinky game, not a quick-plant-some-trees game. Yeah, that was photosynthesis and i think one thing i think as we're wrapping this up that that really comes to mind is a lot of these games that have surprised us have a couple of things in common and that is companies that have really exceeded our original expectations or original feelings about them uh from usaopoly becoming the op and really delivering a fabulously stronger collection of games in general oh yeah uh, that that 
surprise us from a game that from a company that just used to put out a different version of Monopoly. Pretty much. Um, and, and now that they have rebranded, they didn't just rebrand to hide themselves. They rebranded because they're putting out new content. Uh, and that that's really impressive. They're not just trying to hide the fact that they make mm-hmm. Monopoly games. They're saying, no, look, we're this company now and look at what we can put out. I think it's time that we should probably actually stop being surprised by true. the great quality that they're putting out. And similarly with Ravensburger, now, unfortunately, Prospero Hall isn't going to be doing any more Ravensburger stuff. No, they still, they put something out for them just this year. Uh, so. Interesting. Yeah, well, that, that, it may be, that may be a long-term thing. Yeah. But given, given the whole relationship with Funko and, and everything, mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see. But I think, uh, you know, Ravensburger isn't just that, uh, you know, the Jigsaw Puzzle Company anymore. Yeah. They were known for kids' games. They have put out a number of fantastic kids' games for years now. Labyrinth, Magic Labyrinth, those are amazing. Um, Enchanted Forest. They were known for good kids' games, and that hasn't changed. But yes, they are now doing solid licensed games. Though I still think out of all of this, if you look through our list, there's a name that comes up multiple times. We didn't say it every time. And that is Prospero Hall. I am amazed by what this production company has done. Now, maybe you're like me. We didn't realize that we thought Prospero Hall was a person. It is not. It is a an in-house game design company that is part of the Funko team. They are a division of Funko. Um, they did the Funko Pop games. They did Disney Villainous. They did Jaws. They did Back to the Future. They did like like almost every good uh, the Wonder Woman mass game. market game. Uh, yeah, the, the Wonder the Wonder Woman game. Yeah, uh, uh, Minecraft Builders and Biomes yeah. we mentioned earlier. Uh, like, they are just honestly knocking it out of the park. Like, like if, if Prospero Hall was a person, they'd be a Steffenfeld for me <laughs> at this point. Like, yeah. I am almost at the point where I want to try everything they make. Like, it is, they make such good games. Horrified, we a mentioned villainous. earlier. Villainous, yep. Yeah. Disney Villainous, like, like. Villainous, I think, might have been their first big hit. That, uh, yeah, with, that was, that was, that was, what I think, what everyone got, got on everyone's radar, at least. Yeah. So, yeah, just really impressed by Prospero Hall. So they follow us online. Maybe they listen to the show or someone from them listened to the show. But big shout out to them for for making mass market. And because a lot of these are Target exclusives now. So mass market games and licensed games actually good. Um, I, I It's amazing in a way to me <laughs> compared to so many years. Like I have been I've been playing games since the 80s technically probably since the 70s you count my, my kids games and like licensed games was a bad thing like if a game had said star wars on it you bought it because it said star wars not because it's going to be good or if it said indiana jones or or et like there is right. not a good et game there you go hey prospero hall or restoration games how about an indiana jones or a, a, a et nowadays i don't think anyone cares indiana jones would be cool though so yeah, that's a that's a shout out that that's our that's our honorable mention basically. Every game made by Prospero Hall until you realize they're all good is going to surprise you for a while. Yep. Uh, and then again, they've got you know the Pop Tarts game coming out. They've got uh, yeah, Disney Haunted Mansion, Disney Haunted Mansion, Pocus Pocus, uh, uh, Disney Jungle Cruise Adventure. Um, you know, there's a The Shining is even a <laughs> they've even got uh, Top Gun, which was maybe not their most standout game from what I've seen, but still had some solid aspects in it. I mean, it's one of the few volleyball board games. There you go. Yeah, people are going nuts right now online for Pan Am. A lot of people are going nuts for Pan Am right now. I did a demo of um, Hocus Pocus, really neat co-op game that is honestly like an improvement on Go Fish of all things, where you're trying to get all your potion ingredients to match either the color or the symbol, but you're allowed to ask your opponents one question every round, like, hey, do you have any Eye of Newt? 
but that's all you're allowed to ask and you have to play based on it. That was really neat. Um, no, just, I, I think we've said enough. Prospero Hall, definitely big thumbs up for everything they've been doing. Actually, I didn't realize they actually did some Zed Man games. Choose your own adventure stuff. Uh, they did the War with the Evil Power Master uh, oh, based off the, the old R.A. Montgomery. Yeah, book. yeah the, the Witch Way book ones. Yeah. So I didn't know that was them either. I haven't tried any of those games. All right. So there you have a number of games that surprised us. Now let's head over to the lobby and see if anyone in our chat room has anything to add. I saw quite a bit going through quite a bit going through so one correction it was it was our anniversary not honeymoon i thought i said anniversary i guess not so i'm gonna have to scroll back here because there's a lot um amsterdam I, we got was as the uh the newest of the city games for the ticket to ride yeah so it's uh new york london amsterdam uh oh and apparently check out the uh board game geek for uh star wars risk as the designer did some rule tweaks to uh, oh. just improve it even more that's good to know yeah, a lot of people didn't know about the Sons of Anarchy retheme. A lot of people missed that the Vault of Dragons is is a retheme with D and D, which right. is kind of cool. Uh, Dungeon Keeper got some Dungeon Keeper love. Uh, some people do prefer Sons of Anarchy over D and D, which is perfectly legit. Absolutely, there's nothing wrong with you know if if it was it was a solid series. It didn't really do anything for me. It's not my my kind of TV, but uh, you know I know my wife loved it. I know tons of people were massive fans. Yeah, to be show. honest, it's it's in my queue actually because I I just finished Hell on Wheels and I was thinking of moving over to that as of the next AMC series I watch. Right, uh, Dungeon Lords Pets I've never played. I have heard that's good. Uh, I don't know if that was something that was a surprise or not. Uh, supposedly it's good for the poo cubes. Oh, unfortunately, I'm seeing bits of chat that I think were replies to stuff we said, <laughs> so I'm not yeah. sure. Battleship popular. All right, well I'm looking through these. What game surprised you, chat room? What games surprised you? You did not expect. Yeah, a lot of Kenny G keeping it sexy. There we go. That was another one of those. Uh, another one of the Prospero Hall ones because they also did Bob Bob Ross as well, right? Yep. Marvel yep. villainous. So so everyday board games. Uh, one Shobu. of the Daniels said Shobu. Shobu, Shobu looks. Good. That's the one with the white and the black. And when you move on one side, you have to move on the other. I think that's the one that looks really good. That is on the Deanna and I need this. Uh, we love the Duke and War Chest, and that style of game is huge for us for date nights when we we go out. Yeah, it's actually ranked thirty on Abstract Games right now on Board Game Geek. Yeah, it's the one I was thinking of. Oh, it's Smirk and Dagger. I have a contact there. Well, there you go. Although we oh, look, smirk and laughter, not smirk and dagger. They're the same company. It's okay. one side's their backstabbing games and one uh, side's their party games. All right. Okie dokie. That's not one I know. Pretty thinky, but very cute. Better than most abstracts. We are going to have to check that one out. Card game for the queen. I don't, I don't call for the queen a card game. I call that an RPG. But yes, that is definitely a go-to for grown-ups who've never played an RPG. I could see that. For the queen, I am a big fan of. Yep. I played that with uh, Danielle, who we, we gamed with the other day. Unmatched. I missed that one. So Unmatched, because they played Funkoverse and thought it would be the same. Yeah, they are not. <laughs> Funkoverse <laughs> yeah. and Unmatched are very different. Uh, Funkoverse is all about card management as well as positioning. I or Sorry, yeah, Unmatched. The Funko games really did shock me. I, I don't feel the need to ne own them. I like miniature wargaming. For me, I just jumped to like Warhammer um, Shadespire, which you and I played there with uh, the Corn yeah. Berserkers versus like that's more my style of skirmish wargame. 
Quartor uh, Corridor. Corridor is a good one. I haven't played Corridor, but Corridor is one that could have been on my list. I just forgot about it. I don't own it. My dad owned a copy, and I don't know where it went. Like, he might have lent it to someone. That's one of those games that used to buy it, like the men's store, that just, like, you leave out on your coffee table. It's made of solid wood, right. and it's all about trying to get your pawn across to the other side of the, um, the board, but every turn you're going to put a wall. So it's wall off the opponent while trying to make a path for yourself. Right. It's fantastic. Quarto's, uh, if I remember correctly, is a match four, but with stacking. That's a good one. Uh, Twitter earlier, Random Scrub said, Tiny Towns looks like an adorable light puzzle, but ended up completely melting my brain. And I got to agree, Tiny Towns is heavier than you'd think. Like, the, the positioning... Um, Town Center is one I thought about putting on the list, but I knew it was going to be as brain-burning as it is when I bought it. But you look at it, and again, it looks like a block-stacking game, but it's it's that one where you're positioning uh, residential units and hotels and the, things grow organically based on what they're next to, and that one breaks my brain every time. I love it, but I played with so many people that hate it. Interesting. One, I'm, one that keeps pop, popping up in my head tonight, uh, but I haven't played in so long that I can't actually remember was Drop It that we played at uh, oh, yeah. QCC. I, I just don't know if that surprised me. It was it was exactly what I thought it would be, and it was well, awesome. See, to me, for me, the, the, the complexity of the rules, right, the interaction of all the different things you can't do is yeah. really what made that game stand out, where it seems like it's a silly little, uh, you know, a silly little sort of dexterity connect four but then you start thinking about no. the levels of, of rules and things you can't do well yeah you can't have the same symbol touch or the same color and then there's some on the edges yeah, yeah the biggest surprise for me in that one was how the pieces moved yeah but i wouldn't say it's a huge shock like i'd throw it on the list but i was surprised just the physics of that game and how slippery things were yeah things did not move how i expected them to move Indeed, and actually, that's one that could have gone on the sh on the uh, the Everyday Board Games show today too, as because that actually has some yeah, table presence. That is some good table presence. Uh, Ryan Town Center, you could definitely do it with blindness. Well, you'd you'd have to be really good at spatial recognition in your head, but you could easily somehow have another player tell you what color your cubes are or add something to the cube so you can touch it. The problem is you need to pull them from a blank randomly, but once they're out, it's just drafting. So you could, I, I think you could, as long as you could visualize the actual board with the cubes on them. I, with help, I think you could definitely play that one. I love Town Center, but like I, okay, Neil is a heavy gamer. Neil likes heavy games. Neil likes flippy game, uh, or uh, likes, likes heavy strategy games, likes PvP. Neil's one of the heavy gamers in the area. And it's from um company that does heavy games normally. And so I taught it to Neil, and Neil this almost flipped the table. He rage quit he literally left in the middle of the game and and went out for a smoke and went home like he didn't come back and we're like I, that game pissed him off that much for him just not getting how it worked and getting frustrated with it and that is the reaction i've gotten with town center i dig it but i i, I almost i might get rid of my copy because i've i haven't found like four locals to play it with who all like it right paris la city la lumiere i don't know that one it's a 2019 game from uh, Devere Games, although a, a ton of other different people. Uh, players compete for their moment in the light by placing oddly shaped building tiles. That sounds cool. Yet another poly polyominoes are the thing. No one seemed to notice that. Everyone noticed everyone's doing rolling rights. Everyone's doing polyominoes. Yeah. You got Copenhagen. You got all the Uwe Action drafting, area majority influence, drafting tile placement. Polyominoes exploded. 
in the last little while. All right, I think we probably got enough. Um, one uh, at Shobu, I had in the notes from Danielle, but hey, Daniel's in the chat, so I didn't have to say that one. There we go. The Grizzled. I see. The Grizzled was about what I expected. The Grizzled is a really good game. That is a cooperative game. The art is amazing. Uh, the tie-in to uh, Je Suis Charlie. Is it? It's been a long time since that happened. A, a really neat game, but to me, it didn't surprise me in any way. I was just like, "Wow, yeah, this is good." Before we move on. Remember, always, if you've got a game or game night question for us, a topic to cover, like surprisingly complex games, head over to the website, click on Ask the Bellhop, or just send me an email, questions at tabletopbellhop.com. Up next, a look at Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, and what's different in this new Gloomhaven intro box set when compared to the original Gloomhaven. Thank you, Tabletop Renaissance, Windsor's newest game store, for providing us with a review copy of Jaws of the Lion. All right, so Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion is published by Cephala Fair Games, as you'd expect. It was designed by Isaac Childress, same as the original, and features artwork from a number of artists. And I do apologize if I get these names wrong. So we got Francesca Berard, Kat Bach, David Bach, David Demerit, Alexander Eichev, Jason D. Kingsley, and Josh T. McDowell. Uh, it was originally released as a Target exclusive in July 2020, and interestingly, this is the first time this happened, it was only a one-month exclusive, which is something new for the board game industry, then was released to the rest of the world, including here in Canada, in August. The best way for you to see what you get in this new Gloomhaven boxed set is to check out our Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion unboxing video on YouTube. Yeah, that one's fries being surprisingly popular, so I'm really happy with the way that one turned out. All right, so we are going to start off with the components here. Normally, I don't go through all the components, but what I want to talk about is what's new. So what are the new components? What's something different than you get in the original? And I got to say, the first thing, one of the most welcome additions, and we were talking about this when we were talking about the Shadowrun box set the other day, is a two-page, well, one-page, one two-sided, welcome to Gloomhaven guide that not only walks you through how to use the contents of this box and what everything is, but it actually tells you how to organize and sort them, which I thought was really cool because this version of Gloomhaven comes with a plastic box insert and a number of baggies. And this guide actually tells you what to bag with what and where to put it all in, which is pretty dang cool. Now, I think it is valuable to point out, however, that you haven't really loved this insert. It's not. The thing is, it's just not as good as it could be. And it just feels like they needed more playtesting or like the design graphics when they had it in AutoCAD or whatever people use nowadays worked great. But then when they physically produced the product, it didn't work out as well because of mold shrink or something like it just it's so close. Right. So one of the things they give you is a tray to put in all the, the chips. There are two destroyed tokens that will not fit. Like, they, they literally go over the top. Like, there is a lid, and it kind of holds them in place. And then to fit the rest, they fit, but you have to perfectly stack them. So you can't just, like, toss all the money in. You need to stack it to get it to fit. And then you get to the fact that the monsters, when you organize them, which we'll get to this in a minute, are in baggies. There's nowhere to put these baggies. So they basically just get dumped in the box. And it just, it's it's like, it's so close. And that's what frustrates me. It is, I got to say, better than having to go out and buy an $80 box insert to organize my game. So into the rest of the components. This box includes four completely new characters, all of which are unlocked at the start of the game. So there's no spoilers here. Uh, these are designed so they can be also be used as new classes in Gloomhaven, which is a, a nice addition. So that 
aspect of Jaws of the Lion can be an expansion to the original, as well as being characters you can play in this game. Now, as part of the onboarding system that we're going to mention multiple times tonight, these card decks are split up more than in Gloomhaven. They're not just one through character level nine. You start off with a set of eight cards, for example, and there are only six of them. And then there's you're going to slowly add more cards because there's two B cards. And after you finish the first scenario, you swap out two A cards for these B cards. And then eventually you unlock your one cards and then you unlock your X cards. So it's it's definitely split up more. And those A cards are are have more information on them and are simpler. They have text boxes on them. And these new cards are very clear about how they work, what you can do, and in fact, notably superior in their clarity compared to a normal Gloomhaven card. Yeah, exactly. We're going to, when we get into some of the changes in this game, some of the changes they made for the cards are fantastic. Now, there are 16 monsters. Surprisingly, they're not all new. 10 of them are new. Three of those new ones are boss monsters. I did think it was a little strange that they overlapped. I kind of figured they give you all new monsters or not new monsters. Now, are these monsters portable over to the main game? Not at all. Not at all compatible, even with the exact same name. The decks are different. They are standalone. They are not meant to be combined with the original. They are retooled and reworked. Now, I don't know if they're made simpler, clearer, or what what the honest difference is. Uh, The one thing I will note, every monster deck had a the usual, where the monster just did a basic move and attack. Gloomhaven, not every monster had that. So that's at least one simpler card. So I think in general, all the cards are simplified slightly, but definitely not compatible. Now, what you won't find in this box are map tiles. No hexes here. No things you have to fit together or overlays to go on maxes. Maxes? On maxes. On maps. Sorry. No overlays to go on the maps. Instead, all the scenarios and maps are presented in a lay-flat spiral-bound book. Uh, There's the scenario book. It's got 25 scenarios. The first five are introductory scenarios that slowly introduce the rules of play one by one. In addition to the main scenario book, there's this weird supplemental scenario book, which I thought was a kind of brilliant way to do it. And basically, it's what you use if they couldn't fit everything in the first book. And what's neat is sometimes they use that to make the map bigger. So I thought that was cool. And to be honest, it would be rather disappointing if the maps were all small enough to fit in that one lay flat book. And thankfully, they didn't start changing scale or something horrible like that in order to make it fit into that one. Yeah, there's, to be honest, there's no reason you couldn't overlay map tiles onto this or the overlays from Gloomhaven on this. So again, these are standalone scenarios. Um, Mythic, mythically, myth-wise, uh, background, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, fluff, the, the story-wise, this lore. story actually happens, the lore is that this game happens before Gloomhaven. This is actually a prequel to the story told in Gloomhaven. So there is no actual overlap in scenarios. But there's no reason you couldn't like put door tiles on the doors in this game instead of using the doors that are there, for example. Uh, you do get a new map. Uh, this is significantly smaller than the one in the original game. The original game is a nice big fold-out board. This is just one solid mounted board. This just shows the town of Gloomhaven itself. And you get a set of 25 stickers that you'll put on the map, one for each scenario. No, the stickers aren't actually that useful considering it's on rails at this point anyway, so far what you've seen. Yeah, well, again, I haven't even gotten through the five intro scenarios at this point, so I I don't want to talk to that because I'm hoping it branches at some point in the future, but I don't actually know that. Um, Interesting to note for the stickers, I don't remember if I talked about this later in the show notes, is uh, they do note the stickers are optional because in this game, unlike the original Gloomhaven, there is nothing you need to destroy. There is nothing that's removed from the game. So if you did not use the stickers, you could easily pass on your copy of Jaws of the Lion to someone else when you were done with it. 
All right. Now, as for the rules, they're split over two different booklets. Anyone who's played a Fantasy Flight game is going to get flashbacks here, though i got to say they're written better than most things from Fantasy Flight. Uh, there's a learn-to-play guide, which very slowly and deliberately walks you through how to play the game. This is the type of book where you don't even read it before you sit down to play. You read it out loud with your group as you open up the box. It holds your hand through the first five scenarios, and each new scenario is going to add new elements to the game, and very distinctly just points out this is all you need to know along with this guide there is a glossary now this is the rule book and what it is is this is all the keywords and core concepts explained in detail and the only time you even touch that book is if something comes up during play and you're a little confused like well wait a minute i'm doing a ranged attack what's line of sight in this or hey wait a minute how does this work you're going to reference it well hopefully that means we don't have to do another faq read through for this one though knowing how popular they are maybe we will anyway yeah, the, sadly, what we do need to do is a errata read-through for the scenario book and the rule books, which is slightly disappointing for a game that was just published. Now, there are a number of new uh, cards. There are event cards that are, again, specific to Jaws of the Lion. There are item cards, battle goal cards. All the scenarios take place in Gloomhaven, so there's no road events here. Now, regarding the battle cards, this is an interesting one. It's a note that some of these goals were inspired by a fan-created deck that was called Satire's Extended Battle Cards. And I guess Isaac worked with Satire to actually adopt some of these into Jaws of the Lion. And I got to thank our guy in the chair, Temujin, for that bit of uh, information, that little bit of trivia. I thought that was really cool. Now, as for the rest of the stuff, it's all stuff we've already seen in Gloomhaven. So I'm not going to go into details about standees and monster and tiles and element boards and all that stuff is all the same. This is just the new stuff. So now that we know about the interesting new stuff that comes with Jaws of the Lion, how about you tell us about some of the actual rule changes and deviations from the original Gloomhaven? Yeah, there's a surprising number of these. Like everything I'd seen online, people talking about this, everyone's talking about the first two things I'm going to mention, which is uh, focus changing and line of sight. But there's more to it than that. Um so in addition to the fact there's a learn to play book, right? And these five introduction scenarios that slowly teach the rules. Like that is an, a fantastic improvement just off the original right there. There are actual rule changes. And the biggest one that people like to debate is a monster focus change. Now focus is based on how far it takes a monster to move and be able to attack. And ties are now broken based on initiative. And this mostly affects ranged attacks. And this is about a six paragraph thing in the rule book and i'm not going to get into it here uh you can read the full text on the blog post um that'll be published for this on the written review i actually like wrote out the full text but if you just google jaws of the lion focus you can find lots of people debating it and talking about it there is a change now this was done to make things simpler and quicker to make the man monster ai quicker and easier to figure out a number of people are talking about adapting this to Gloomhaven. Isaac himself prefers the original Gloomhaven rules, but has said, play the game how you like. Well, at least on the surface, things certainly seem to uh, be improved. And judging by how fast you burn through those first three scenarios, even though they, they are, of course, learning, you know, mm -hmm. rank, uh, graded scenarios, the speed change has been, definitely been notable. Yeah, it's definitely quicker. Plus, we do have a lot of experience playing Gloomhaven. So that's something I probably should have noted at the top of this. At this point, we have not finished a Gloomhaven campaign, but we have played probably 50 sessions of Gloomhaven. So we are not new to Gloomhaven. 
Uh, line of sight. This is a very welcome change to me. This is so simple now. All it is is if you can draw a line from any part of the attacker's hex to any part of the target's test without crossing a wall, you have line of sight. Yeah, and this, and, you know, <laughs> thank God, as a viewer listening to Gloom, Gloomhaven players gauge and work on line of sight and, and, and debate and argue about line of sight was not the most fun part of the viewing experience. Oh, so many weird rules from measuring from a corner that was touching a wall, not counting, and near blind enemies in some of the scenarios. No, this is, this is a huge improvement. Now, here's one that people may overlook as a change, and that is a significant change to advantage-disadvantage rules that makes the game simpler. This comes to when an ambiguous uh, situation comes up. And in the original Gloomhaven, if you had an ambiguous situation, so I drew a plus two and a plus one wound, what's better? Right. And that's totally situational. So it's ambiguous. In Gloomhaven, you're stuck with the first card you drew. In Jaws of the Lion, you get the pick. Right. Well, as long as you're hitting the monsters, plus two all the way. Uh, interesting. Uh, yeah. So it's the reason, apparently, that Isaac mentions, and we'll go but just jumping back to focus a little bit. The reason he, he suggests the sticking with the original focus is uh, to not confuse gloomhaven players so yeah. if you are a gloomhaven player and you are used to the initial focus rules as they have always been go ahead and keep playing those because all we did was change them to simplify the game for new players and that's the reason for the change and why he supports why he plays with the old focus rules mm -hmm. All right, another one I really like is the new iconography showing which monsters to spawn depending on the player count. Uh, it's right on the map. It's got bars underneath. It is completely clear. Um, that is one that I have seen people mess up many times with the original. Yeah, the benefit of not having generic tiles right there, but that also means I'm guessing that you can't do random dungeons in Jaws of the Lion. No, there are no random dungeon rules. There, there is a, a Basically, if I don't mention it in the, the start there, it's probably not in Jaws of the Lion even if it was in Gloomhaven. Now, another welcome change is that players can now trade items. This is huge. Plus, when you find treasure during a scenario, the player who found that treasure can use it during that scenario. Also, even if they couldn't hold that item at the start of the scenario, they can use it. So even if you already had two items and you get a third, you can still use it. And then when you're selling, this is a, another, this is a change I'll bet you a lot of people are going to miss. When selling items, you now round up instead of round down when selling. But note, one of the things that is in Gloomhaven that isn't in this is Renown. There is no reputation score in Jaws of the Lion. So prices on the card aren't going to be modified. So you don't get like a discount for being the heroes or pay more for doing badly. Um, also, though, you still can't trade or share gold. So gold is still personal, but items can be shared. Which, which I don't know. I mean, you are supposed to be playing parties in both games, in Gloom and in, I mean, you are, you are a group, a party. Uh, you're a mercenary company that is in it for the money. That is strictly stated right in the rules. So I think that's where the money thing comes in. Right. And that was the original argument for not trading items either. Right. Okay. It's, it's you're a party, but you're a party of mercenaries. Right. Which in Gloom, you are not heroes either necessarily. You you can totally go either way with the reputation system. Right. But yeah, the 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 if you can trade items, why can't you trade gold? I can totally get. The problem is it would affect a lot of the battle goals which is an aspect of the game that has a little people playing for themselves. 
Right. Uh, still talking about items, but specifically treasure and loot. Uh, monsters can now loot treasure tiles, so watch out for slimes next to treasure chests. Though thankfully there are no slimes in this, but ooze, if you're going to port the rules over to the main Gloomhaven, those ooze are going to eat up those treasure tiles and some of those things. Uh, but in general, yes, they can loot the treasure. Um, Suburban monsters drop coins. And I got to say, it's silly that they drop coins. Like, it doesn't make sense that they're supposed to be some monsters, but so much easier to keep track of. One of the things I hate in the original Gloomhaven is trying to keep track of what was a summon and what wasn't. Even using the Gloomhaven Helper app made that difficult. Um, another change that to me just made sense is in the previous rules, the rule for an empty square was there is nothing in it. No tile, no overlay, nothing. They now said coins don't count, which is actually a huge, just makes sense yeah, that I the coins on the floor don't take up space. Yeah, there's some interesting shift there, but I think redefining the empty space really just makes a lot of sense and avoids confu really some really easily confusing uh, things that you could be looking at. Uh, there is a new step to combat that I like. Uh, this is using initiative tokens. These are something totally new in Jaws of the Lion. Every character and every monster comes with this tiny initiative token. And this is neat because all it is is when, when you've all flipped over your cards, you set these tokens up in order, which is great for keeping track of when who everyone's going and is even better for players who forget what initiative they picked. Now, normally for our Gloomhaven games, we do use the Gloomhaven helper app, so it's taken care of. But for people who don't use the app, a, a nice edition yeah and i think we we do generally recommend you should be using the app but if you uh you know if you prefer the au natural version uh it is definitely a major benefit i do have one complaint is they are too tiny and all the monsters are the same color it would have been nice to tell them apart from across the board but it's still a nice touch like it, it could have been better but it's it's fine yeah. Now, another one, we kind of hinted at this one earlier, is the fact they have added dotted lines to the ability cards. And what the dotted line means is that they separate individual actions. This makes the card so much easier to read and to see what part of the card applies to what other part of the card and how things interact. And you can check out our FAQ from Gloomhaven about for lots of rants on that particular topic. Yes, they, the, the, the card layouts are so much better. All right, the final rule change, and this is another one that people are probably going to miss if, they, if they're not careful, is that city events have become mandatory. In Gloomhaven, anytime you end a scenario and go back to town, you can do a city event. In Jaws of the Lion, after every scenario, you must do a city event. And note, there's an errata for the end of scenario four where it doesn't remind you of this. Well, so now we know what's changed. What are your thoughts on these changes? All right. So I'm pretty sure you can get uh, the gist already from what I've had to say. I am extremely impressed overall by what Gloomhaven Jaws the Lion brings to the table. Like almost everything added to this box was done to make Gloomhaven a more accessible game, something that could appeal to a more casual audience because Gloomhaven is not a light game. It is not an Ameritrash chuck and dice D, D in a box style game this is a hand management resource management euro style game it's a cooperative puzzle whereas jaws of the lion makes that puzzle easier i and this onboarding and accessibility starts even with the price right uh, jaws of the lion is very in my opinion very reasonably priced for what you get in this box this is not a light or small box the fact that it has a box insert is really nice. And the fact it even has instructions how to sort your bits is another part of the onboarding system I like. Though the highlight really is that learn to play guide. 
the first five scenarios that slowly introduce the rules one game aspect at a time is brilliant. Like, I am, I'm not going to get into full details here, but, like, they did su such smart things as in the first scenario, you don't have a monster attack deck. All the monsters just act the same. They act on initiative 50, they move one and attack anyone next to them. Done. So you don't even have to worry about that aspect of seeing monsters doing different things every turn. And it's a great way to teach the monster AI for melee combat. Like, it, just little things like that. Every single one of the rule changes I thought were great. Welcome changes. I wouldn't complain about a single one of them. Uh, some of them seem to be done to make the game easier and play easier to play and understand uh, specifically the new focus and line of sight rules are definitely simpler other ones seem to be things players have been asking for and wanting in house ruling especially if you look through board game geek threads uh, like the ability to trade items and f having a way to track initiative that's better than having to remember what cards people played so I, I think it's a mix of things to make the game more accessible and things that I think people have been hoping for so now one thing, and this came up in the chat room, and I think it's, it's something I saw watching through some of your first plays, is as experienced Gloomhaven players, right? So people who, who know Gloomhaven and know and, and have worked out a lot of the quirks and things, what about these intro games in particular has sort of been a little problematic because, again, you're actually having to unlearn mm. a lot of things that you know. The hardest thing by far is using rules that haven't been introduced yet. So in like, there is no such thing as a long rest until scenario four. There is no such thing as using the basic abilities of your card in scenario one. I, that's either introduced in scenario two or three. I can't remember which one right hand. So it's that whole, you're just going to play expecting all the rules to be there. Uh, so some of it is error proofed. So for example, by giving you those a cards, there are no burn cards. There's no cards that are lost as spending them. So you can't screw that up. And there are no elemental infusions on the A or B cards. So again, you're not going to make the mistake of using the elements. And that's the same thing where they provide you actually with sample monster decks too. So there are the Vermling Raider deck, right? But there's also the basic Vermling Raider deck that's only four cards. And again, Isaac was brilliant enough that none of those have push or pull. And none of those have element infusions. So you can't screw it up if it's not there. But then there's the other things where you're just like the, the short rest, the long rest, the using your basic attack, um, things like that. You're just going to be able to discard cards instead of taking damage is something you can't do in the early scenarios. So it's the unlearning what you've learned could be a problem. But to be honest, it's not going to hurt. Like the only reason I got a little frustrated with the fact we messed that up once is I was trying to record the video as a teach and play so that people could learn how to play. And here we are using rules we were not supposed to be able to use yet. But as players who are playing Gloomhaven, just use the full rules. Like it's it's not going to, you're not going to break anything. Right. And trust me, the scenarios, I got to say, this is, they're almost too easy in a way, the, the same way you have a problem with uh, Harry Potter Hogwarts battle. Right. The ramp up at scenario four is significant. It, it, it is a big jump. As seasoned Gloomhaven players, we got someone down to one hit point. Like, it was it was close. We could have easily had one character exhausted. I have seen other local gamers and players who are not familiar with Gloomhaven get very frustrated by Scenario 4. And so the onboarding's nice, but it does ramp up significantly. But in a way, it has to. Because Gloomhaven is not an easy game, and it's not meant to be. It's not meant to be an RPG. It's not meant to be the game is the DM, and it's going to walk you through a story. No, it's going to try to punish you and beat you down. Now, I think I know the answer to this, but uh, the they asked in the chat, 
if you are an experienced Gloomhaven player, can you skip to, uh, you know, four or five or, or do you need to go, do you need to go through the, uh, the beginner adventures? For one, you'll need to go through to get the experience. So unless you're like, you could just jump to the reward section and write it down and do it. But you know what? It was fun. Like, I, I don't see why not. Like, being able to kick some Vermling butt in Scenario 1 was kind of fun. Plus, another big part of Gloomhaven is learning your cards and learning your character class. So this is a good way to get used to your character class. Though, again, because you swap out your cards, that's a little little weird. So here's, here's a side note. So I'm, I'll finish your, yours, and then I have a side note. Um, I just don't see why you wouldn't. And the other thing is, like, we were able to finish the first three scenarios in one night in about an hour and a half, I think. And that's with, like, streaming and, and moving microphones and moving cameras. Like, they're, they're not long. Once you get to scenario four, you're still, that one's maybe 45 minutes to an hour. You could probably play through all five at once uh, in one sitting if you if you had a long enough game night. And I just don't see why you wouldn't. Yeah, if you weren't streaming. I just don't see why you wouldn't, to be honest. You could, though, but definitely get the rewards. Like, like because you're going to need those to get the experience right. before. Again, I'm, I, I'm slightly spoiling things here, but you, you will need to, to have the experience to get into the main the main Thanks. story. Plus, you're, and you, you're going to want to read out the story and stuff like that. Uh, scenario one, if anything, you could probably really, like, there's really, like, come on, the monsters don't even, you don't even flip up actions. They, they move one and attack two right. over and over and over. Um. Now, to the other topic. This is something I actually found a little frustrating. They change the deck so often. So you start off with six cards that it walks you through very clearly. They're all basically moves and attacks and possibly heals. Like, there's no push-pull. There's no elemental infusions. Um, they haven't even added burst or multiple target attacks at this point. And you're like, all right, got great. Then they take two of the cards and they just change those two cards. And you get new versions of those cards that are more complicated. One of those is going to be a burn card. So now you can do something really cool, but you lose the card. And you're going to also add possibly a push, polar, a status effect, a stun, or poison or something, right? And But it's still the same card. It does the same thing. Then you get your one cards, and then suddenly you have to basically relearn the whole character. Despite the fact the cards have the same names, they no longer do the same things. So, for example, I had a card that all the way through the game was I can move the enemy three squares, like right from the beginning. I'm like, all right, I move them three squares, I move them three squares. All of a sudden, it now only moves them one square unless dark is infused, and then I can infuse dark to move them two more. And that is such a different card and so much more situational. And there was definitely a learning curve. And again, that hits at scenario four. So besides the difficulty ramping up in scenario four, you now have to relearn your entire character, which it just felt odd. Like, like the, the basic cards were so far from the cards you ended up with. And I kind of get it, because the basic cards have to be there to teach you. And, well, the one cards have to be there because you can play these characters in Gloomhaven. So they have to be compatible and comparable to the other level one cards for the other Gloomhaven classes. So there's definitely a thing there. So so that is an odd feeling. I, I, I'm not saying good or bad, but there's a definite, like I said, a jump. You hit Scenario 4 and it's like, whoa, I got to learn how to play my character again. I thought I knew what I was doing. And I don't know how much Sean's going to edit the live stream, but you can see it in the live stream because there is a significant section of silence as Deanna and I basically relearn how to play the game. Yeah, there were some there were some clips and cuts and, zo and zooms, but uh, yeah. you know, again, even even uh, you know, it's it's an hour, so the episode one uh, is is one hour, start to finish, including all of the you know 
general, hey, you're watching. Well, how to play. That one I basically teach you how to play Gloomhaven in it. So So we'll see. We'll see how the second one goes. That one I that one will be editing tomorrow probably and we'll see uh, we'll see how that one goes for next week. So what what I what I'm most impressed by is Jaws of Lion does what it sets out to do. It's exactly the point of this box set is to make Gloomhaven more accessible to people. And this is by far, if anyone was like, oh, I kind of want to get into Gloomhaven, I'm going to tell them by Jaws of the Line. I don't suggest anyone jump to the full game. And it's probably going to be the same thing for Frosthaven when it comes out. Jaws of the Lion is your starting spot. This is your, you're going to get onboarded so much better. It's going to slowly ramp up. It's going to show you how to play. It's going to point out to you that this is not your 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 typical Dungeons and Dragons roll the dice, beat up the bad guys kind of game. Uh, the step-by-step introductory scenarios are brilliant. As for the rules changes, I liked all of them. Um, there's going to be a number of groups out there that take these and put them into Gloomhaven, and I can see it. I am going, we're going to have to sit down once Tori and Kat are back over and we're playing and talk about including some of these. Like being able to trade things, I don't think it's going to break Gloomhaven. Plus, I, the new line of sight rules, I think that one I'm going to insist. Like, I don't care. Sorry, we're using those people. We yeah, are, I don't, we are I don't see do Tori especially. I don't see arguing about that. Yeah, exactly. You guys, the number of times. Again, you know, again, as a viewer, as someone who watches your Gloomhaven play, yeah. line of sight questions come up a lot all the time all the, and, and our guy in the chair points us points yep. out when we mess them up often yeah the other thing that i really like about jaws of the lion is i now have a version of gloomhaven i could bring down to the cg realm and show off i could sit the uh, scenario five or scenario four and show other people how to play without spoiling anything the original gloomhaven yes you can go back and replay through a scenario but i don't want to hand anyone uh the whatever Vermly mind thief deck who's never played before and say go which is how you had to do it before I, I like I could easily sit down and do a demo night say at the CG realm give me a one hour time slot and get people through scenario one through four or one through three at least and then probably explain how four and five work and probably sell significant copies of the game just by doing that and I can totally see sitting down and maybe playing scenario 17 in this a lot easier than breaking out Gloomhaven to play a scenario I've already beaten before for a more in-depth look at Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, you can head over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on Reviews. Well, today, we're going to take a look at Mermaid Adventures Revised, a family-friendly setting book for the PIP System Core Book. One note before we start, we were provided with a review copy of this source book from Third Eye Games. Uh, it's also worth noting, like many of the read, uh, re- RPG reviews we've done lately due in the time of pandemic, this is a read review. I have sat down, read the source book, but sadly haven't had a chance to get it to the table yet. Now, this one is something I can play with my kids. So I am hoping to get it to the table soon. So look forward to an actual play report and an actual play review sometime in the future. Now, finally note, this is a review of Mermaid Adventures Revised, which matters. This is not the original Mermaid Adventures RPG. The original Mermaid Adventures is the RPG I chose to introduce my girls to uh, and the first their first role-playing experience. And you can check out my review of that edition on the blog or back to podcast episode 94, Black Lives Matter, where we featured Aloy LaSanta. Now, at times during this review, I am going to be comparing the two different versions because they are significantly different in a number of ways. So doing the, during, due to this being an RPG review, we won't be pointing you towards an unboxing video today. 
No, but what I can tell you is that uh, the production quality of the book was pretty solid. Um, the version I have is the color soft cover edition. As far as I know, it only comes in color. Uh, you can also get it in PDF format. Uh, the version I have is a digest size paperback book that clocks in at 100 pages long, which includes a table of contents, a character sheet, and an index. The other thing to note, though, that is, I think, very important is this is not a complete game. This is not a game on its own. It is not playable standalone. The PIP system core book is required to use this book. Now, this is a notable change from the original, which was standalone and, well, not expensive. It's important to know that you will need an additional purchase in order to play your new mermaid game. Now, similar to the PIP system core book, Mermaid Adventures is full color, features a lot of excellent diverse artwork, including all kinds of merfolk and potential adversaries. If you think all merfolk are half fish, half person, you need to check this book out. There are some really interesting ideas here. Uh, the font is larger than normal, kind you'd expect in like a kid's book or a young adult book, uh, which is nice. I appreciate that. Um... It also features a two-column layout, uh, basically the same layout as the PIS system core book we talked about last week. What's interesting is this is a complete divergence from the original book. Uh, the original book, single-column layout with much smaller font, which is kind of interesting to see. I got to say, I prefer this new layout. It's easier on the eyes and easier to read, and it just lays out and flows better. Overall, I found the book to be well-written, pretty easy to read, nice and clear. I didn't find anything confusing or out of place. Uh, my first read-through, I did. I will admit, took a couple of days to get through, but I could have easily just powered through it in a single afternoon. So readability is an important factor for both kids and parents in relation to this game. Yeah, my daughter borrowed this one off me and read through it and managed to fit it and finish it in one morning. So it definitely can be done. Uh, the book is broken into six chapters, uh, again, using the new PIP system rules. Uh, so six chapters using for, for the PIP system, and then there are five short sample adventures at the end of the book. Now, this is a source book for the PIP system core book, so you don't get anything like uh, what is role-playing, how to plan a session, or any of that stuff. You also don't get any rules, like the actual mechanics. The rules are not repeated here at all, so the PIP system's not explained. You're not gonna... It doesn't walk you through how to make a character. It just presents the new options. It doesn't tell you how to build dice pools or how to read your white dice or your black dice or any of that stuff. So again, this is a huge change from the original edition, which was a standalone book with everything you needed to play. Right. Which, you know, given the system's change, it makes sense. There's no point in wasting a reader's time duplicating content when it's built on that other book completely. Yep. Now, taking a quick walk through each chapter, um, first you get some setting information. You got the underwater city of Atlantis, its various peoples, who the rulers are, the denizens. Uh, they talk about the dark lands, which are outside of Atlantis. They talk about the slipstream, which is this quick way to move around underwater locations, but it can be very dangerous. Um, what's neat to see here is there's actually more setting material here than was in the original Mermaid Adventures. Which you're, you're kind of hopeful for because, again, they have taken out all of those systems and rules and dice pools and character creation. So you would hope that they'd take at least some of that room and, and add to uh, the, the story content. Yep, there is more story content as well as other stuff, like when we get to the new archetypes. So archetypes we talked about in the PIP system are your basically like your character class, right? So what you have here are types of merfolk. You've got eel folk, fish folk, jelly folk, lobster folk, octo folk, ray folk, seahorse folk, shark folk, turtle folk, and urchin folk. 
Now, these use the PIP system rules where you have, uh, you know, your physical mental health. You get a set of starting skills, one at two and two at one. You get one unique ability and one hindrance. So this is the same as all the archetypes in the other game. Now, with again, interestingly, compared to the original, there are two new types of mermaids here. So I thought that was neat. The seahorse folk and turtle folk did not exist in the original game. Again, less system, more room. Now, no new skills are added. Skills are like your strength dex con equivalent in this. Uh, but there are a number of qualities, which are kind of like specializations. Uh, these are things that mostly make sense for an underwater fantasy setting, right? So you have like fast swimmer under athletics, uh, royalty under charm, because it's got a kind of medieval theme going on here. Uh, human expert under knowledge, skill, and so on. There are also a number of new special qualities. Again, these are like special skills that are unique to characters. These include, again, setting specific stuff like Darklands Guide or the Atlantean Guard and Sense the Slipstream. Now, on the magic side of things, magic is optional in the original Pip rule book. It is required for this because magic is a big part of Mermaid Adventures. So they present two new magic traditions. Uh, there's the Sea Witch, who can grant anyone any spell, but they have to give up something very important to them, which I think ties into a lot of Sea Witch fantasy we see in Mermaid stories the world over. And the Sorcerer. Uh, there's also a number of new spells. Uh, many of these, though, I think would have been useful in any PIP setting. So I think if you have the PIP system core book and you want some new spells, this might be worth picking up just for that. Like, you've got stuff like Beam, Hypno-Eyes, which could work anywhere. But then you also have very Mermaid Adventure-specific ones like Fish Form. Well, you know, it's nice that uh, because this is a generic system, you can then, you know, take these bits and pieces from your various uh, scenario books or, or your system books and backfill those into the PIP system elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. The only problem you have is which something I'll, I'll, I'll highlight a bit more later is you've got multiple books, right? You get the D&D &D problem of what book was that in? Uh, there are a number of new random charts in this book, new versus the PIP system book, which I, I'm almost positive I didn't compare them chart for chart, are a carryover from the original edition, which had a whole thing for rolling your eye color, your skin color, your friends, what type of fish you are, and so on. Uh, what was weird is it didn't specifically say if you roll these in addition to the charts in the PIP system book or instead of them. I'm thinking these replaced them because there was some rather odd stuff on those original charts, as we talked about in the other review. So I think it's a replacement, but it's still cool to see. You know, it sounds like the original charts could still be narratively fun, uh, but the ones in this supplement are probably more highly focused to avoid the Little Mermaid collector syndrome with yes. characters, right? Everyone wants their bits and bobs because that, you know, that that's that's what they ended up rolling. Very true. Uh, there is a group of sample characters. Uh, this is a longer section than I would have expected. Like these are fully flushed out art background all the mechanics worked out all the skills um 10 total pre-made characters sitting there uh I, I i don't know this didn't exist at all in the original um in a way i guess it's good because this could get you started playing right right away or be good for like a one shot or a con game yeah so i love this because with 10 characters you can get younger players in right away and have them play multiple games with different characters before you have to worry about teaching them the character creation portion portion. Uh, you're not going to get the 10, uh, you know, 10 characters in one game for a no. you know beginner kids game. But if you've got two or three kids, that means you've got three or four games mm -hmm. to break in the rest of the system before you have to worry about character development. Yeah, very fair. Very fair. 
Uh, then we get to the extras chapter. Uh, no new gear, which is a little surprising to me, but a whole bunch of uh, themed adversaries for the Navigator. Uh, that's what they call the game guide in this. Um, to throw at the players. Um, you've got all the stuff you expect from mermaids, right? So you have fish and dolphins. you got pirates and bandits and uh, undead skeleton pirates. And, of course, there's a kraken and a sea dragon. Um, I, again, I didn't compare one-to-one, but I have a feeling this is pretty much the same list as the adversary risk in the core book. Uh, with, of course, all full rules for the core system, the PIP system rules, which are significantly more advanced for, for NPCs, for extras. Like, every single one of them has three special abilities unique to that monster, and they have different styles of hit points and everything. So, basically, I think they took the original list and just updated it. Now, as for game guide advice, again, called The Navigator, there's not a lot here. Uh, Just a couple paragraphs basically explaining, look, it's mermaids. You're underwater. It's fantasy. Think Disney. Don't think reality. Uh, Don't argue about, like, when you talk underwater, all that would happen is bubbles. Like, underwater fires can be a thing, right? So I thought that was cool. More useful, though is here are another bunch of charts. Uh, A significant number, six of them, so you roll a d6, see which chart, and then 12, sorry, 11 options on each because you roll 2d6, so 2 to 12 on every chart. And these are just to spark adventure ideas in mermaid adventures. I like this a lot, actually Uh, more than I would have thought, like just hearing about it didn't sound that cool until I started reading them. And like one of them is find a mystery potion. All right, cool. And then you got your best friend wrecked the family chariot. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I would have never came up with that on my own. Or one of you is slowly becoming a mini Kraken. Find a way to stop this transformation before it's too late. And these are just like three of the things of this multiple charts. I thought this was really nice. Yeah, so this is really great concept for a busy parent or a new navigator just starting out. So they don't have to fumble around too much building and, and, and trying to figure out adventure ideas, they can just get started. Mm-hmm. And whether it's new players or old players, it's that if that if you're that new navigator, you can get going. And then if you are the new navigator just starting off and you, or you have no time to prep, the game does end with five sample adventures. Now these I was hoping for new ones to be honest, but these are identical uh, the stories are identical to the original Mermaid Adventures, but completely updated mechanically for the new PIP system with all the detail you would expect with the PIP system compared to the basic system. Now, my complaint about these, though, is they are written, every step of these adventures is written as if the characters pass the rules with no help for the navigator if they fail. So, for example, it might say, roll a navigation roll to find the right way to go. And it's difficulty two black dice. And that's it. That's all it says. Well, well, what if they fail? What if they don't? What, what happens? Do they lose time? Do they get lost? Do bad guys attack? Like, uh, now, this is nothing an experienced GM wouldn't be able to handle, but this is a game geared at young and new players. So I got to say, that seems like a bit of an omission. Like, just where is that when things go wrong paragraph? Yeah, that's definitely an odd exclusion, considering how much help they've given elsewhere. Now... Overall, I don't know. I I am I on the fence isn't the I don't know. I, I'm not sure what to think about that. So one thing I haven't mentioned, and when we talked about the PIP system core book last week, is that there's basically two sets of rules in that book. Now it's small, but you get the whole set of the rule book, and then the back of the book are these rules for playing with new players and playing for with kids that simplify all of the different skills down to only four skills and all qualities are just you have it or you don't, and they provide one white die. It's a really dead simple system. This entire book is the full 
PIP rules. Nothing is in these lighter rules. And I find that odd because the original Mermaid Adventures was the basis for those simple rules in the back of the PIP system core book. And it just seems like an odd choice to not present both or have this have still been the easy rules. Yeah, well, how difficult would it have been to dial down to the easier mode manually? Like, so if you were an experienced GM, um, can you can you backtrack what they've done there to that easy mode? You could do it, but like when you get to the the extras section, you'd have to be writing notes for every single one of the monsters, right? Like you'd have to go, okay, here is their I forget there's fourteen stats. You like grab a highlighter or something and only highlight the four that matter. And then you'd have to decide, like, okay, here's their list of seven special qualities. They're only allowed one now. What's one thing that sums up all of those? Like, there, there's work required. Like, it's not just a, a quick, simple, you only look at this part of the character sheet. That might have been a good compromise. Perhaps if they had somehow a lawyer, someone had gone in and provided that extra stat block, right? That extra role. So what this means is that Mermaid Adventures Revised is no longer aimed at really young players. Like, for example, I can't see using this book the way I used the original Mermaid Adventures. This is not a game I would have presented to my preschool children to get them into role-playing. Now, on the other side, I think this book is much more interesting for older kids. And, well, how many people are introducing their preschoolers to role-playing? Most people are going to start their kids probably in their tweens and teens. And this, to me, seems great for tweens and teens. It's, it's much more interesting and mechanically interesting. And there's more to learn and there's more crunch. Plus, this is going to be a way better game for adults. If there's adults out there that want to play mermaids under the sea. And trust me, I know enough adult role-players that would love playing in this setting. Yeah, well, there aren't, I don't doubt for a moment, just knowing people I do, that there are plenty of kids uh, with the ability to play the more complete system who enjoy the theme, as well as adults who would just absolutely dig jumping into this sort of a game. Uh, but that still leaves you with eliminating this youth market that yeah. seems like an obvious selling point that that has now been missed. Yeah, I just, I, I find it odd. Um, now what I like even less though than this, uh, like the ramping up in difficulty, it, it's fine, right? Like I, your target market, how many people are playing with pre-scores? Like I said, I, I guess I get it. The thing that bothers me the most, so is the fact this is not a standalone book. I would have much preferred a full, possibly shortened explanation of the PIP system to be in this book with full character creation rules, rules for gear, rules for weapons, rules for conflicts, all of that. And in my opinion, should have been in this book. Now, I realize that would have made the book much thicker and obviously would have cost more. But I would much prefer that than having to flip between two books, like having even even just like having all the special qualities in one spot would be nice or a summary, maybe even provide me a summary chart that says here's all the special qualities, the ones from the core book and this book in one place and reference a page. So at least I'm not fumbling between two books. I Maybe this is just me, but I would have much preferred a full core rule book. Though car systems and supplemental books are hardly new or different uh, because of what this game had been, uh, you know, a beginners, easy, kids-friendly, children's role-playing game, it, it, it is an interesting shift in this particular game. 
like don't get me wrong i'm i'm not trying to completely bash this book this is a solidly written rpg supplement it's got a very cool world it's got a great family friendly setting it's got all the advantages of the pip system including the disadvantages like i know sean's not a big fan of the dice pool system it's got everything we talked about that's good and bad about the pip system we talked about before it's better laid out it has more artwork it has more options it's got some great new character classes it is a great addition to the pip system core book i think but i just i think i preferred the original book for one being an all-in-one book with rules and setting but second for having those dead simple rules those rules geared towards brand new and young players like at this point i wish what aloy had done is kept both books in print possibly renaming them so they didn't look the same like like i don't know call this mermaid adventures advanced which i know advanced D, whatever or call this pip core mermaid adventures or something or, or rename the other one mermaid adventures junior like I, I just wish both options were still out there yeah no absolutely so for a more in-depth look at mermaid adventures revised you can head over to tabletopbellhop.com and click on reviews and now the Bellhops Tabletop, where we look back and summarize what's happened since we were last here. What games hit our tables? Every week we like to take this look back at the games we played, events we've attended, and other cool gaming stuff that's going on. So speaking of events, last weekend there was yet another online game convention. This was the Camp Capstone Virtual Gaming Con, uh, put on by Clay of Capstone Games. This hit on the 15th and the 16th of uh, this month. Um, this was what I'm now seeing pretty much every online con be like. It kind of followed that same format um, with a con-specific Discord server uh, with all the stuff you'd expect. Um, now, this was Capstone-specific, so it was just their games. There was a room for every game they publish. Um, there were a number of demos being done, all demos done being used Tabletopia. Uh, they, it seems like everyone seems to be leaning towards that because it's free. Uh, there were multiple chat rooms, which I liked because previous cons always had like just a, a single big like hall-style room, and it was nice that there were multiples, so it didn't get too loud or too busy. Uh, they did have a dealer room set up, which I appreciated because uh, they actually had prices that like good good deals, which is something we did not get at a lot of the other virtual cons. They had some really nice like if you attended Cap Camp Capstone, you could get some good deals on uh, Capstone games. Uh, that was nice. Um, and the other thing I greatly appreciate as a Canadian is they were offering everything worldwide, which is the biggest complaint I've had about some of the recent online cons is they are very U.S. centric. Um, it was nice to see this one to be a little more opened up there. Now, I will admit I didn't actually buy anything. I don't have the budget for new games right now, but I was at least tempted. There were a number of panels, interviews, and game demos over the weekend. Uh, I attended some of these. They used YouTube Live for all of these, which personally I prefer Twitch. I, I don't know if that's just preference. Like, I don't know if I'm just used to Twitch or whatever it was. I found the chat a little more annoying. I missed not having my uh, my emotion emoticons. I so wanted to ding the bell. Um, the reason for that is this was all hosted by the Brawling Brothers, Josh and Brandon, which if you don't listen to their podcast and you're a board gamer, I'm kind of shocked because that is a fantastically produced uh, tabletop gaming podcast. Uh, Josh and Brandon did a great job hosting, actually. I have been a longtime fan of their show. They did a good job hosting all the different chats and moderating. Um, went really well for that aspect. 
Some highlights for me include checking out an uh, interview with Clay Ross. That's the owner of Capstone Games. That was pretty solid. There was a panel pipeline of development, uh, which talked about the game Pipeline. That was a huge hit for Capstone last year um, the, at Origins and Gen Con. And they talked about how that has now developed into a lighter game called Curious Cargo, which actually takes parts of Pipeline, the pipeline part of Pipeline, and makes it a standalone game. So that sounded really cool. Uh Attended an interview with artist Ian O'Toole, which actually I really dug because this is weird, right? We talked about this with the Renegade Con, and I think I mentioned it during the Gen Con Con as well, because almost all the other artist interviews I've attended, I'm always shocked because you have these board game artists or graphic designers who do artwork for games, but don't actually play games. Uh, for example, the Miko. I love the Miko's art. He has never played any of the games he's done art for. Now, Ian was the exact opposite. Like, besides being a gamer... He thinks it's part of his job as a board game graphic designer. No, he doesn't like to be called an artist. Is actually using artwork to improve the games and make them more playable. To him, that's part of the job. If he's contracted to do artwork for a game, he's also developing the game through the artwork. He talked about ways to do this, including one of his big things he likes to do is put tracks on the board. So instead of having, and this is a way to reduce component cost as well as table space. So instead of having to have people have piles of things, you just track it on the board with one marker, which I'm like, brilliant. That makes total sense, actually. And talked about like how the flow of play should match how um, most people in North America read. So you should be starting at the top right or top left of the board and going left to right and down the board as things progress. It was really interesting that um, the way Ian talked about this, I'm like, that is really cool. Uh, another panel I went to was hosted by Wheel Tapping. This is an 18xx train game podcast. And I gotta say, if you were a train gamer, check out Wheel Tapping. Uh, these people know their stuff. There were, there were two, I don't know if it's always two people, but there were two hosts from the Wheel Tapping podcast. Check that out. Um, this was a whole thing where they were talking about the number of winsome games that'll be coming from Capstone. So if you were excited about Irish Gage, there's more coming. So that was pretty cool. Um... The biggest one that I attended was the Brawling Brothers Bourbon Night. And this was a virtual version of a podcaster meetup at a con. And if you haven't gone to a podcaster meetup at a con, I'd say you're missing out, but you might want to. Um, this was surprisingly similar to the real thing. Tons and tons of people in chat, people talking over top of each other, hosts from a number of different podcasts, including the Brawling Brothers, Man vs. Meeple, Blue Peg pink peg and more uh the host drinking too much and getting silly um the sponsors of the show being there with capstone and a ton of giveaways uh they couldn't give away stuff fast enough uh people in the chat leaving once the giveaways were done uh pretty much everything you expect without the crush of people or difficulty getting to the bar for a drink of your own from an actual con podcast meetup I, I was really surprised by how much this really reminded me of going to an actual brawling brothers meetup um interestingly in a very cool way i actually won a copy of watergate which is an 8.1 i think on a board game geek right now a fantastic game supposedly including the broken token insert so which means i'll never play it but it's actually really cool that i actually won something so that was neat but apparently the, they were actually complaining that so many canadians were winning things yes Yes, they were getting a little frustrated. So, again, they were offering worldwide shipping, right? So I was actually the first winner of the night, which was cool. And I guess the next three people who won were Canadians. So one of the Chris, I don't remember his last name, who was who was hosting this and is someone who was running 
the running the con, he was their, their, I don't know what you call it, CEO or whatever, running the con, was like, oh, stop winning Canadians. We can't afford to ship to you. But man, were they generous? Like, they weren't just giving away, they were giving away deluxe copies of Capstone, of their games, the deluxe box, like, with box inserts and upgrades. I'm like, man, Clay, Clay was generous. I got to say, I was really impressed by that. But you know what? He's hosting a, a con for his fans of his company only. Like, this isn't Origins, this isn't Gen Con. Everyone in that room loves Capstone games. Like, talk talk about talking directly to your audience. So, you know what? I, I don't blame him. I gotta say, I'm digging these virtual cons, uh, but man, there's they're still not real cons. Like, I miss it. I'll admit, I don't miss the big podcaster meetups. We don't go to those anymore. They're, they're a lot less fun than you think they are. Just too many people just trying to get free stuff and no actual way to interact with the people you want to actually meet and interact with, that I found. As for gameplays, a bunch of Jaws of the Lion for us lately, working through the intro scenarios. Uh, the thing I think worth mentioning here is we have been live streaming our games, so watch our uh, Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash tabletop for those. I think at this point we're probably going to go back to our regular schedule of Friday nights at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, twitch.tv slash tabletop bellhop. We will be playing this Friday and possibly every Friday going forward. Now, as for Jaws of the Lion, Deanna and I are both really enjoying it. Um, I can't stress enough how much better the learning curve is with this box. Like, Gloomhaven beats the crap out of you when you start playing that game for the first time. Where this is, like, dive in and get... Get, get play like scenario one and then play scenario two and learn the rules and slowly learn it as opposed to being fed to the sharks in the original game. This has definitely been more enjoyable at the, right from the start. Though uh, we did note that again, some experienced Gloomhavers will have a little trouble unlearning some of what they know uh, through those first uh, few sets. But then again, once you're at, you know, four or five by, by four or five, that after you've, you know, burn through that, you know, hour and a half or two hours of their first three scenarios, you're back up to, to knowing everything you're supposed to know. So, yeah, just uh, again, if you know Gloomhaven and you take a short rest in the first scenario for one man, you don't know Gloomhaven very well, but <laughs> it's not going to break anything. Uh, the other gaming we got in this week is an actual role-playing game, which should be a shock to everyone who's listened to the show since the day one, um, except when we weren't at a con. We, we have talked about playing games at cons, so skipping cons, we played a game here at my house, sort of, online. Um, I ran a game of Runaway Hirelings from Thomas Novacell. Uh Sean, Deanna, and a handful of our Patreon patrons uh, joined us to play that game, and I guess I think it went rather well. Now, that is something we are going to review next week as part of the review of Palooza. So I'm going to save most of the thoughts uh, for that next week. But I will say it was quite fun. Though, wow, was that a bit of a test of my uh, improv skills. Like, that, that, that's, that's, uh, that might be my limit, right? Like, that, that, that game, I don't think I could go any more improv than that. I at least got to get some prompts from the characters in this game. There was at least some guidance. Uh, I think if it was any more than that, it, my brain would have exploded. I, anything you want to say about the game, Sean? So you know what? It's a it's a fun little light story, rules light storytelling system. We'll, we'll delve into it more later. Uh, very one-off, but it really highlights something that I've seen before in story games that's something I'm not sure how to manage. And I'd love to hear some thoughts from listeners and, and viewers in the comments uh, about how you manage as a DM or guide in the... Um, when you have players who are more introverted versus more extroverted in your game so that you're really balancing your players' 
uh, activity, right? You don't want someone quarterbacking or, or, or running simply because other players are a little shy or, or just sort of, you know, just different, different styles of gaming. Uh, and you really need to sort of balance that all out to make sure that everyone's having fun. And some people aren't sitting there going, yeah, it was all right, but I didn't really get a chance to do anything. Uh, because that's something that can really ruin gaming for some people. Uh, and I've seen it at cons in PBTA games. Uh, I've seen it, and I've seen some people who enjoy that too, which is another problem because you actually have to bounce that. I remember perfect example, our kids with bikes games game. There was one player who didn't want to get too involved in the game. He wanted to be there and experience it, but he wasn't the, the, the you know, the play forward action, you know, keep keep involved, keep the things moving, keep suggesting things type of player. And they seem to enjoy that. But I, it was a struggle at that time when I thought, I think it was, was running for us. So. Yeah, definitely. I got to say playing just through voice made that more difficult because uh, you couldn't get the visual cues, right? So you couldn't tell if someone wanted to say something. And I think there were times, I, I don't think it happened often, but I do think a couple times people got talked over and then just got quiet instead of speaking up after. I, I definitely saw that happen during our game. Whereas, you know, you get the, the, you know, leaning in the, the, obviously you have something to add and it's a little harder with as uh, the game guide, game master, storyteller, whatever. I don't even, Dunark. It was called the Dunark in that game. I, I forgot the name of it. It was a little more difficult and, and trying to uh, share spotlight time, right? It, it was difficult to have like same people making suggestions all the time with chat only though. Yeah, it's definitely, I, and next time I think I'd like to have the video on, not to stream it or anything, but just like in Jitsi so I can see those cues and just, be able to like have people like, you know, hold up a finger or hold up something if they have something to add. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, how about a look ahead? What do you have planned for the coming week? All right. So I got stuff I need to play before the review of Palooza. So I, I need in uh, some roll for lasers, uh, some more breakdancing meeples. Uh, one, I'm not sure if I'm going to get to. I'm going to try is Flick Wars, which is a miniature war game that uses dexterity um that one deanna is refusing to play so i'm gonna have to convince the kids to play it so because she has no interest in miniature war gaming skirmishes or dexterity uh it's gonna be rough trying to fit it all in but you know what the kids will probably appreciate me grabbing them to play games for the next week now a quick shout out and a thank you to some of our vip guests our patreon backers we greatly appreciate their support evil john it's piling up we owe you too many games we need to fix that soon wayne humfleet Thanks, Wayne, especially for Gokuku. Roger Malosh. Thanks, Roger. Zopi, thank you. And David Miller Jr. Thanks, David. Well, that was the double bell. That means my shift's coming to an end and we're going to have to lock those front doors. Though the doors to the lobby are closed and the portcullis is down, you can always find us across the web and social media as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Drop by our website at tabletopbellhop.com for more gaming content. If you like the content we're providing and would like to support our continued efforts, please consider tipping your bellhop at patreon.com slash tabletopbellhop. Remember to join us here on Twitch every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern and watch for the Tabletop Bellhop gaming podcast to hit your podcatchers and YouTube every 2 a.m. on Tuesday. Well, that about wraps up the time we have for the show tonight. For those of you here live, thank you for joining us and be sure to stick around and join us in the penthouse suite for the after show where there's an unbox or unpackaging to happen for Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast. I'm Sean and I'm Mo. Thank you and game, game on. on.
Graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG & Co. Music is Nimbus by Eveningland. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license.